0: you um. Hi, everyone. I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. In this episode, Richard and I resume with our discussion of Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire for the Reading Revolution series. This is part two. By the way, uh, for those of you who are listening, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spreaker, or SoundCloud. And also to follow us on Twitter at Left POC, Facebook at Left POC, or, and or, I should say, Patreon uh, by going to patreon.com leftpoc left POC. On the Patreon page, you'll find all the free books and information that go along with the podcast, as well as find out ways to donate. Uh, so be sure to check that out. And on with the show. So Richard and I are back. This is another episode of Reading Revolution and we're going on to part two of our discussion of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And where we left off in the first part of our discussion was at the sort of beginning of the actual intro to the book that was written by Freire because as we discussed in part one, there are like multiple prefaces and intros to this book that actually also contain really interesting and fascinating information that we did not want to skip over. Um, but in this case, we had a little bit to finish on, um, the preface or the introduction from Freire himself, and then we can start going into chapter one and chapter two. So I think specifically where we left off, you and I were talking about, or at least I was asking a question about what does Freire mean when he talks about love throughout this work? He sort of hints, he sort of hints at it in the preface, but then also the meaning of this phrase or this term that comes up throughout the book, and especially in his preface, which is the word in Portuguese, which means like the process of consciousness making. So I just wanted to start with a brief discussion of that. And then you and I can get into chapter one. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you specifically who are reading along in this, uh, this edition of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, if you go to page 35, at the very bottom, the translator was <laughs> nice enough to provide an actual definition um because if you look at the word conscientization it literally means and if you were to translate it literally it means conscientization <laughs> which is not an english word but it's like the creation or the making of consciousness and so the translator says quote the term conscientization refers to the learning to per- to learning to perceive social political and economic contradictions and to take action against the oppressive elements of reality. So even that is sort of confusing in some ways. I mean, what do you think he means by that, Richard? If you looked at that definition, because the definition is kind of also a little bit bulky, right?
1: Yeah, it, it's. It feels reminds it, or I should say, it reminds me of uh, reading Aristotle, and just that it, it's kind of a, a bulky uh statement at the front end that you're going to have to read the book to understand completely like it just gives you an an idea of like oh okay so learning to perceive the social political (laughs) and economic contradictions well wait what does he mean contradictions it's like okay I'm, i'm going to need to read more to understand this because he's introducing or using terms in ways that aren't familiar already for i think most of us so uh That's my first impression, and then I guess that when it's uh, in taking action against the oppressive elements of reality, I see, uh, you know, echoes of, you know, praxis, and that part of this is going to be, uh, it's going to be an active thing, it's not going Mm -hmm. to be a passive uh, observational thing, so it's it's not just simply looking on the world, but it's uh, also interacting with that world.
0: Right. And he does this thing too, where like throughout this introduction, he doesn't, he doesn't just tell us stuff. And I think this is good for us to think about when we start talking about chapter two, about his way of educating, right? What Freire considers a more productive way to educate others. But like, he doesn't just tell us if he's not like, this is what this means. And there you have it. This is the definition we're working with. He sort of like lets the definitions unfold, which I kind of appreciate because it really does, as you said, it like makes you get more deep into the book and like read along and try to understand and unpack things um, bit by bit, as opposed to just like expecting a definition to see and memorize and then keep going, you know? Um, So like, if you look at the top of 36, he starts to kind of break apart the meaning of the term he says for example um, top of 36 on the contrary it's by making possible for people to enter the historical process as responsible subjects conscientious now enrolls them in search of self-affirmation and thus avoids fanaticism so like and then he says further the awakening of the awakening of critical consciousness leads the way to the expression of social discontents Precisely because these discontents, discontents are real components of an oppressive situation. So basically the way I read that is like, you if you're in a situation where you're being oppressed and like you're, you're, what you're living on a daily basis, the process of becoming more conscious is not just a matter of like someone coming down and telling you what to do, but you're being able to see and finally assess. What's happening, like as you said, a search for self-affirmation, right? And -hmm. I think if you do that, and he kind of he talks about this a bit in um, chapter one too, but if you do that, it keeps you from just following people, you know. And this is why he means this is what he means when he says like you can avoid fanaticism. So it's not just um, a matter of like following a leader who will help free you from your oppression, but instead you becoming conscious and then freeing yourself, right? Because ultimately, this liberatory process that he describes is one that involves the community of oppressed people coming to terms with what's happening to them, assessing it, and then working toward their own liberation, not something that's top-down, you know?
1: Yes, it's very grassroots and, uh, you know, uh, interactive. And uh, that's, I think, a theme that we see repeated throughout the book and uh, definitely something that furry wants you to furry wants all of us to pull away from the book, I, I gather, is that it's an engagement with uh, this process and uh, not uh, in the top down uh, as he calls it the banking model uh, or and refers that it's been referred to as, you know, like the pitcher model Mm -hmm. where, you know, you're filling an empty pitcher that, that he, he rejects outright that that will work. I mean, and he says it several times uh, essentially in in a few different ways that uh, you can't achieve liberation that way that, uh, you essentially that you get something else, but go ahead.
0: I mean, the other thing too that like I, I personally, I mean, there's the problem with this book is that I just highlighted the whole thing, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's one right. of those books, right? You know, when you're little and you're like first starting school and you get your highlight. People don't highlight anything anymore these days, right? Like everything's with a computer. But um I remember when I was little, and you know, highlighters were like this big thing, and markers and whatever, and you would use your markers to take your notes and to highlight important parts of the text, and when learning how to properly do these things and how to properly take notes, you know, the teacher was always like you don't need to write down what i say verbatim. You don't need to highlight the whole book. You know, you have to highlight the most important parts and i was always like, but well, what if the whole book is important, you know? <laughs> like
2: everything he <laughs> right. says
0: in this particular book, every it's one of those cases where like every line is full of so much information and like such deep. It makes you think so deeply about things and i think that that's what that's a testament to how great the book is, to be honest, and how important the mm-hmm. theory that he lays out in it is. So like on the same page or page, I think it's like page 37 or so, he says that we have to be careful not to confuse freedom with the maintenance of the status quo. And that like conscientization is something that threatens the status quo, right? That the point of it is to not have us repeating the same mistakes. It's supposed to break us free from those from this process. Right. And I think that's something that we also have to really come to terms with because sometimes uh, as, as just generous people in general, not it doesn't matter what country you're from, but I think we have a tendency to kind of get comfortable with the status quo, even if it's oppressing us
1: <laughs> and
0: mm-hmm. sometimes overthrowing that is, it creates a great sense of discomfort inside of us because we don't feel like we have any reassurances that things are going to get better. Um, and he talks about this too, like this sort of, moment where you lack the confidence and the self-confidence that there's freedom, like that the oppressed have a moment where we like, we have trouble grappling with what freedom is. Um, and because we've been confused for so long, we've been told over and over that freedom is, looks this way, when in actuality, it's, it's not a repeat of the status quo and it's not a, an adjustment or a reform of the status quo, but it's an overthrowing, it's a threatening, it's an undoing of the status quo. Um, and that we need conscientious, ourselves to get to that point, you know? Um, but that's one of the things that I like, and he says over and over in many ways that I kept finding myself highlighting because it's true. And I think we have a tendency to just kind of, I don't know, we, we don't, sometimes we, I don't think, I don't think we even realize that we're just, we're, we're just still reliant upon status quo methods to resolve much, much bigger problems.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and how reliant we are on the conference that provided by certain status quo arrangements, and how, you know, if, what that challenge means if we if we if we do challenge the underlying assumptions necessary to those uh, for those conditions, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. the necessity we feel for a cell phone, and then the, the realities of the conditions that it takes to produce a cell phone. It, if we actually challenge those and actually like look at them, are we going to always determine that we're going to need it or do we want to just not really think about it so that we don't have to come to that conclusion it, that we might come to the conclusion that we we don't need it it's not helping us it's it's a negative it's a net negative and we'd be better off without it it's like mm-hmm. well that's scary <laughs> <You> know, <Yeah. laughs> it's, it's just like just the feeling of not knowing where your phone is for a moment can can raise your anxiety level and blood pressure and heart rate and it's like the idea that you you might you may have to find an existence without it like oh that, that that's terrifying. It's like, but it may be a better existence. Is uh, the hopeful part of that? And uh, but just leaving those options and investigating and in in analyzing the situation and in looking at those contradictions uh, is an unsettling feeling for mm-hmm. for most. And uh, I mean, uh, I definitely I've experienced it multiple times as I've started to engage with this material and you know try to see how it applies to to my life.
0: Yeah, oh, for sure. There is. Um, there's something that I think uh, I want to table and not discuss for now that's in the intro, but perhaps we can do in like part three or when we do the conclusion for our discussion of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, but for those who are reading along, I think it's like page 38. Basically all of page 38, I was sort of left with a big question mark um, because he Freire talks about um, our understanding of future and like past and time. Um, and the ways that the left and the right have tendencies to be to fall into these sort of sectarian practices. Um, and I think it's something that we should perhaps revisit not now because I do want to get to chapter one and two, um, but I just want to table that for later because I was sort of I highlighted it and was a bit confused by his position, but I also wonder if sort of his historical circumstances um, are what put him in a position to say what he says about both the left and the right. Um, but I do want to, keep going, and I just wanted to say that on the next page, he starts talking about and outlining what he means by pedagogy of the oppressed as he goes into chapter one, um, and also he talks about the need for us to not just, again, sort of not to to reinvent the wheel or to reaffirm status quo, but the need for us to be radical if we're actually planning on liberating ourselves in any way, we have to go beyond um, just reform. And we have to engage in radical practices that will make us uncomfortable and that will at the same time, um, they do have to rely on not just making people uncomfortable, like that's not the basis of the process of radicalization, but that just to be prepared for that discomfort and also to be prepared to renounce it and to go beyond that discomfort and find a real sense of dialogue with other people. um, And. Learn new ways of engaging with those that we're trying to to collaborate with toward change. So I know that sounded like word salad, but that's kind of how this book reads at some points, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's I mean I I think it's also good for us to maybe talk about that as well, like the way it was written, because uh, one of the things that he talks about throughout is like the need for us to be able to just everyone can pick this up and read it, but sometimes it's going to take some time. Like I don't think it's for me. It's never been a book that I'm just like oh i can read this on the train or whatever and and not like i i think it's a book that for for a lot of us has to be read slowly where you kind mm-hmm. of take up you look at each sentence and you take it apart and you say like what does he mean by this um and that's a practice that i don't know maybe it's just me i don't know richard you can feel free to jump in on this but like when you were reading it did you ever find yourself also wondering like uh, am i misreading something or should i you know like i <laughs> am mean like but i i don't know like what are your thoughts on that? just the way it was written to the style of the book
1: yeah uh i mean i i definitely felt some of that uh i i started to engage with it and I, at first when i just first did my first look at it when i was like okay this uh, i got the recommended recommendation and i was like okay this looks like a good book and i was just flipping through and and reading some things i was like oh wow okay here's some words and terms and phrases in ways that I'm, that doesn't make sense to me. And I'm looking at the words around it. You're trying to use my context clues and um, I'm not getting there. I'm I'm looking at the dictionary definition and it doesn't seem to match up with the usage. And um, uh, this doesn't seem like a translation issue. So I'm like, okay, this is, this is going to be deep. And then I start reading it. And then I, uh, as I've mentioned before on previous, uh, episodes that I use uh, the natural reader uh, thing online so that I can listen to the app the same or listen to the text while I usually read along. Mm-hmm. And uh, I definitely found myself rewinding and going back and like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> 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 and so like in one of the things that I, when I, when I engage with material and something I feel about uh, not just uh, theory myself, but uh, uh, with art as well is that, you know the person that the creator has an intention and then they put that intention and sometimes they share that with the audience and sometimes they they don't directly but mm-hmm. that doesn't limit the creation to from inspiring other avenues of thought and so uh i don't claim like i i can be inspired by a thought and it may or may not be what was intended or what was uh, you know but i i try to make sure that when i when i presented to somebody else i mentioned this is what i interpreted out of it not necessarily this is what they were saying or this is what they meant and i found that this was going to be a lot of that that uh i'm going to do my best to give the people both uh, you know direct quotes about what he's saying specifically but then also how how that inter how i was able to interpret that or how it applied to me and some of the things that you were just mentioning some of the quotes that stuck out to me was uh that the radical, uh, committed to human liberation, on page thirty-nine, about halfway mm-hmm. down, uh, does not become the prisoner of a circle of certainty uh, within which reality is also imprisoned. Uh, and uh, when you get through the book, the text, and you understand what he's saying when he says when he's talking about reality and uh, liberation, I think that makes more sense. But in it's when you before you've read it, it only kind of I think clues you into it and mm-hmm. so i think that was uh part of kind of what you were talking about there and then the other part of that was uh this individual is not afraid to confront to listen to see the world unveiled and so like you mentioned that to be that you know could making people uncomfortable isn't the point but in order to be engaged in this process you can't like live in a perpetual fear of you know knowing more might mm-hmm. ruin like uh, i i experience this constantly I, I for me the first one that happened that like really sticks out in my mind is on twitter uh mark lamont hill mentioned something about professional wrestling like wwf w, uh, wwe and basically pointed out how racist the characters were early in and in how racist some of the actual people in the sport were and all this and it's like oh you just ruined my childhood it's like, I don't even want I don't want to be on Twitter anymore if this is what's going to happen, if everything that I've loved and I've grown up thinking was a happy thing was actually just oppressing me and, you know, perpetuating all these evil stereotypes and all this bad, bad things. It's like, I don't want that. I'd rather just think that those were happy things. It's like, well, no, if we're going to engage in this process, we can't be afraid of that. We have to, you know, confront it and go boldly. Mm-hmm. And so those two stuck out as far as and kind of encapsulated and that's how I related to someone what you were just talking about.
2: No, absolutely.
0: And that part about like the, the quote that you read about the radical, I also highlighted that because I think it's one that, you know, it, and he, as you said, he gets into this later, but it helps us break down the sense of fatalism, right? Because I think, and I, this is something I fall prey to all mm-hmm. the time, and even for anyone who's ever listened to our Reading Revolution discussions, I'm the one, like I said in the year <laughs> in review, I'm the one where like, there's no solution, <laughs> like <there's> this is <laughs> it, you know? And it is, it is an easy trap to fall into because, and I admit, like I sometimes I, I'm sitting here racking my brain, like what can little old Wendy and Richard do to fix? X, Y, Z humongous problem. Right. And I think that what he's saying here is like, if you're truly radical, you're not worried about that. Right. Like the reality, Mm -hmm. you're not, you're not seeing yourself as trapped by the reality. You have to think beyond it. And like, I really appreciate that reminder because I do think that sometimes, and this is not just me, this is like everyone on the left, because we're so preoccupied with the problems of the world as we should be. But I think sometimes that constant onslaught of this very depressing and like negative news can also sometimes trap us into this feeling that all of a sudden, oh, what are we going to be able to do about it though, right? Like what can we do to change it if we don't have, if we don't possess the means, um, the material means, the money, the weapons, whatever, to engage in like something that interrupts these much more powerful things. And so I think for him, he's saying that it's not just about this material aspect of it, but it's also a, a process that has to take place inside the human being inside of all of us we have to have first a liberation of our minds before we can start liberating ourselves as a society you know um mm-hmm. and i think this is a key step that sometimes we forget is important um and and i appreciate him introducing that it seems it seems minor you know but it's like a huge thing actually if we're all living within these minds that are also trapped that means that there's an indefinite limit <laughs> like there's always going to be a wall on what we can actually do. And so that's a good reminder for all of us that like, if, if we are truly committed to radicalism, we can't just see a wall first, we have to, we have to get beyond and break beyond the wall. Um, and that requires a lot of self, that requires a lot of introspection and thinking and rethinking what we've learned and rethinking the status quo. Um, so, Going into chapter one, uh, one of the things that he mainly focuses on in chapter one is this idea of humanization. And I think this is important for us to talk about really briefly because and in some of the intros, they mentioned that, you know, he was he was preoccupied with questions of class and race and gender and all of that. But one of the things that he saw as unifying for the oppressed was that there was a, a process of dehumanization where we were we were made unhuman, basically. Um, and that the process mm-hmm. of someone who's engaging in radical change, one of the first steps is to then recognize that we have to rehumanize ourselves. Ultimately, we have to create a sense of humanization. Um, and that means really kind of valuing the the person as not just an object, but as a member of a society and a contributing member of that society, especially one that we want to see as a free society, right? So it's not just a, you're not just somebody who's working, you're not just someone who's, who's sitting in a classroom, but you're also an active and engaged member of uh, whatever you plan to produce out of that space. Um, so I, this is around 43 and 44, where he talks about d de- so we'll start maybe with dehumanization and explain what that means and how he defines it but he says on 44 dehumanization which marks not only those whose humanity has been stolen but also through in a different though in a different way those who have stolen it it is a distortion of the vocation of becoming fully human and he keeps going on and he says the struggle is possible on- the struggle is possible only because dehumanization through a concrete historical fact is not a given destiny, but the result of an unjust order that engenders violence in the oppressors, which in turn dehumanizes the oppressed. So basically he's like, people who consider themselves oppressed and who are oppressed within a system are not the only ones who are oppressed ultimately even those who are engaging in oppressing others are trapped by their own system of oppressive behavior you know what I mean it's kind of, it's mm-hmm. and it's something I've heard as well about like there have been some arguments even Frederick Douglass makes an argument about this with regard to the ways that slavery not only enslaved the slave but also put the slave master in a system in which it was like a perpetual in order to create who he was he had to engage in this oppressive practice that ultimately kind of in some ways, oppresses it limit. I don't want to say oppresses because I don't think slave masters were oppressed, but I would say limits um, the the space in which they too operate, right? Because it defines their role as as um, someone who engenders this violence and who dehumanizes, but also is dehumanized in that mutual process. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Well, I, in it's it's hard to for me to kind of. Uh, Respond without encapsulating the whole text that I've read, but mm-hmm. uh, I think it relies a lot on the concept of love, as we mentioned earlier, and of any he, he mentions it later on. Uh, I don't know exactly where the quote is uh, at the moment, but I, I think we'll come across it later as we dissect the chapter specifically. Yeah, is that uh, the that uh, in order to be an oppressor, it strips your ability to love. Uh, basically anyone but yourself uh-huh. and and in that process uh like that when in order to you know rob somebody of their humanity you have to rob everyone of a certain bit of humanity it's kind of a, a different take on the an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere in that you know if you're when you take somebody's humanity you ki- you kill a little part of your own it's 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 uh it's kind of unavoidable and and the more you participate in this oppressive system the more prevents you from not applying it any to everywhere outside of yourself Uh and so that you start to dehumanize everyone and even the people that you you want to love your love becomes the more paternal uh love that uh he he describes in more detail later rather than the the this conscientious or i'm not i'm consciousness making i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm that's what i'm gonna go with it's <laughs> a hard a, word to person. say like i said it's yeah. hard to say
0: in portuguese and it doesn't exist in english so like i don't blame you it's a lot it's got a lot of syllables conscientious so it's like six syllables so
1: yes so out of, re- <laughs> out of deference and respect to everyone involved uh, i'm gonna go with consciousness making and uh uh, uh forgive me for those one uh, one day i will get me on my us or my my us focus and i will learn other languages and be able to practice them more fluently <laughs> way. Anyway. you got time <laughs> <laughs> uh but the so this the the dehumanization i found uh in, in this theme of love uh and how that plays a role in the consciousness making i feel like they're all interrelated in that love it acts as uh this is going to be a bad choice of words in the moment, but it fits for what I'm saying, but it acts as a lubricant for the make making of uh, consciousness. And he actually refers to consciousness making as a birth. And so mm-hmm. I think that like, uh, I can see how, you know, these overlapping themes, but uh, that the, the, how love functions in that way is it allows and it motivates you to want to see that consciousness making in others. And and in yourself, and, and others seeing it reflected in yourself, and uh, uh, I picked a bunch of random songs that actually, I felt, had uh, articulated it in random ways. but rather than uh, uh, fill this part with it, I'll just uh, link, I'll, I'll, I'll hook uh, Wendy up with some links, and then we'll put it in the description, but. Could uh, do
0: like a pedagogy of the oppressed playlist.
1: Right. You should it,
0: actually. next. That should be like the finale. <laughs> have a right. uh, we just uh, have to get the rights. But yeah. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh,
1: but so like. Uh, uh, for me. Uh, one of the answers. When Wendy asked this question. In the previous uh, episode. One of the answers that I came towards. Was basically that love is. Uh, raising our consciousness. Uh, making together. It's 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 doing that and and being that and uh, uh, enjoying like deriving our joy from both achieving it in ourselves and seeing it achieved in others. And the way capitalism and the way that the the banking model and all these things work is, uh, you can't enjoy it the the raising of consciousness in others because of the way that the system is set up you're penalized for that versus being rewarded for uh you know playing into all the types of slogans and the easy rhetoric that might have made this book more digestible if it was a, a buzzfeed list of you know 10 ways to, <laughs> to teach illiterate people or whatever you know it was like how a lot of people interpreted what this book was meant to be right. but uh, uh well what uh Freire was after was the raising of the consciousness of the, of the people he was uh, hoping would read this text and uh that meant lifting them to a place beyond you know just simply uh, uh you know accepting or uh moderating the circumstances which which they find themselves and I I kind of just jumped through a whole lot of things but that yeah uh <laughs> it, 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 we will go through the specifics I think uh, when we start diving into them but like you'll see how those themes pop up over and over again and how they Uh, interplay off of uh, each point that he's making I guess.
0: Right because everything in the book kind of builds as I said it's more of a layered thing so if you miss it the first time you'll get it like a couple pages down he'll say it again but in a different way like you said earlier Um, Mm -hmm. and it's also interesting because I think this overlaps very nicely with our discussion from many months ago about the use of propaganda in on left on the left and its need to kind of reinforce the same messages over and over though in slightly tweaked different ways um, so that people can if you didn't understand it the first time, you might understand it the second or third time. And I think that you really see that in practice in this work, which kind of makes it so cool because it's almost an example of like communism at work in a book, in book form, which is really mm-hmm. in and of itself is like pretty cool to me. The other thing, too, that um, we sort of hinted at at the beginning, we were talking about the preface because liberation theology is mentioned, which is the practice of using Christianity. And this is pretty common in both the U.S. South among civil rights organiz- organizers and um, people in Latin America who were attempting to free themselves from military dictatorships and the like. Um, but they used Christianity as sort of a liberatory force and they interpreted the Bible and um, what many in what many would say were like um ways that were more close to what jesus was actually up to you know like Mm -hmm. to actually you know push put forth a message of equality and um over overcoming oppression and things like that pushing beyond oppression i would say um but one of the things that i when i was reading this chapter one that stood out to me so much that i absolutely loved and reminded me of like what if there's anything good about the bible like these are certain things that i remember when i was little i was like oh yeah that's pretty cool like Thanks, Jesus, for saying that Um, (laughs) was on page. I think this is like 44. It's like the second page in chapter one. But he says um, Freire himself says uh, that only power that springs from the weakness of the oppressed will be sufficiently strong to free both any attempt to quote unquote, soften the power of the oppressor in deference to the weakness of the oppressed almost always manifests itself in the form of false generosity. And like this, you had hinted at in our first discussion about like the false um, charities and like how, you know, rich people are engaged in what we call like philanthrocapitalism, capitalism, where it looks like they're helping, but they're actually like creating a dependency and then harming the community in some way. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes when you see like, I don't know, these people going to Africa, the country, apparently, because there are no individual countries in Africa. <laughs> uh, it's a continent, everybody. But like people who want to go to Africa and find themselves and like think they're going to help people and then in actuality end up harming the community in many ways because they're not listening to the people. They're they're like enacting a policy upon them and in many ways oppressing them as a result and then trying to free them through furthering their oppression. Um, so I think he, he does a good job in pointing this out. And what that particular line about power springing from the weak and the oppressed it really i couldn't help but see the line where like blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth um which Mm -hmm. is a line from the bible that i like the one that i actually care about Um, (laughs) because i think it's one that we have to also remember in our our activism and that it's so important like this whole the whole first chapter really does the second chapter too in a lot of ways because it reminds me over and over that We cannot, as activists or as people on the left or whatever, you cannot concern yourself with just telling other people what to do, and you cannot concern yourself by not listening to the people who are the most oppressed. It's basically, I mean, what he's basically saying is what you'd hear, for example, women in the Combahee River Collective say, which is like, you know, when we're free, when like black women are free, everybody's free, right? And another way of putting that is when the oppressed are free everybody is free, (laughs) you know, like this is a, this is just a, people are saying the same thing, but in different ways. Um, And these are, this is just a particular line that for me stood out quite a bit. And I think sums up what we need to be doing on the left by understanding that liberation is not something that is top down, but is something that has to come from, from the language of the oppressed and from understanding and listening to their needs and letting them lead. This is, I mean, Again, it seems like basic, basic ass stuff, but there are a lot of people who don't want to listen to this and who don't, who don't understand this as a principal aspect of what being on the left means.
1: Yeah. The the line that comes to my mind is uh, on page 45, uh, who are better prepared than the oppressed to understand the terrible significance of an oppressive society. Uh And
0: it's like perfect.
1: Right. And it's just like some people are like, well, maybe uh, the Krasenstein brothers. I don't know. Maybe that. <laughs> 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 and I'm just, I mean, yeah, that's where I'm at. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to do with y'all sometimes. <laughs> yeah.
0: But he also says, I mean, I think that even, as much as we're like celebrating this line, he also has a lot of cautionary notes throughout chapter one, which I think are really important too, like ways to try to avoid repeating the same problems that the oppressors have left for us in a society. And so, for example, on page 45, same page that you were reading from, he said, almost always in the initial stage of struggle, the oppressed, instead of striving for liberation, Tend themselves to become oppressors or sub oppressors. The very structure of their thought has been conditioned by the contradictions of the concrete existential situation in which they were shaped. Okay, that's a lot. But basically, Mm -hmm. to translate that, what he's saying is like if you grow up in a particular system that is oppressive, that's all you know, right? This is the structure that you've been conditioned by. And so when you're trying to free yourself, in the beginning, there are going to be mistakes because you're going to think about this. The only way you've learned society is through oppression, and so that's if that's the only language you know how to speak. Your first few words are going to be that of oppression too, just repeating this this type of oppression. Um, so instead of saying, for example, you know, like he gives examples about like revolutionaries becoming the oppressor, right? So trying not so much to free both the former oppressor and the oppressed, they focus on creating, like turning the oppressor into the oppressed. So a good example of that is like mm. in anti-colonial movements, for example, you'll see people who are, um, you know, they, they gain their freedom and then they may get engage in practices that limit access, uh, or I guess not access, but limit, limit certain um, rights to people who are the descendants of oppressors, right? take that for whatever you will. And I think also I understand that sentiment, right? Their sentiment makes sense. Like, of course you don't want the oppressor to have any more power. You don't want his people to be in a position where they can hurt you again. But I think what Freire is pointing to, and again, this is like, it it reminds me so much of Christianity, this idea of like turning the other cheek and all this stuff. I think what he's trying to say is like, if you want actual freedom, then everybody has to be free and you cannot repeat the same process of, trying to then create a new social strata where those who hurt you in the past are now the ones that you're hurting because it just turns you into the oppressor it doesn't actually free the society
1: exactly like yeah that that when you're stuck in the confines of that oppressive system that you think by flipping the 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 poles so that the oppressed or the uh, oppressor and the oppress the oppressor the oppressed that somehow you've uh, attained freedom this is you know as we see in liberal or capitalism, you know, it's like getting wealthy. That if if you go from being one of the exploited people on the line to being somebody who owns the factory, that's freedom. Mm-hmm. Like when, mm-hmm. and when it's it was, not. Yeah, that's not free. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: it looks
0: that like you said. I think you even opened with this right when we first started talking about it. Or maybe this was something else that I, I think I was talking. It was in another discussion, but like this this article that's going around that's showing how there's so many women now in the military industrial complex. Mm
2: -hmm. It's like,
0: that's not feminism. That's not freedom for women. That's just women entering the role of the oppressor.
1: Yep. And uh, yeah, yeah. that is not liberation. And so like these are the inherent contradictions that I found in liberal. And, you know, even a lot, like I find these in a lot of somewhat progressive circles too. So this is, this is how I tumbled into the political situation that I'm in is, confronting these contradictions finding no solutions finding people mad or angry that you bring these contradictions up and right. and finding in Frary is like oh you know this is what's going to happen they're going to do that <laughs> and, and this is you can't be afraid of those contradictions you have to confront them and deal with them you can't just you know instantly block somebody if they you know it's like but it, as you were just mentioning with the kind of the turn the other cheek philosophy and then like not becoming the oppressors uh uh not becoming the oppressors. He does mention, uh, I I don't know if I even highlighted it specifically, but it's ringing out in my brain uh, mm. it, that this isn't to be confused with, uh, you know, preventing your oppressors from regaining power in an immediate, you know, immediately following a revolution in that right. And I think the kind of underlying principle and the argument he's making is that by doing using a, con- a process of consciousness making, rather than using slogans and and those types of things, uh, in order to achieve uh, the this this uh, com- con- or to confront the contradiction, then uh, that you're pre- that's one way that you're preventing uh, you know these the previous oppressors from com- regaining power in society. But that there also may be things that may like look to the uninitiated or to the the uh, p- to those that haven't engaged in the dynamics of this to be oppressing of the oppressor. But that we have to we have to engage with those and be able to distinguish those because there are going to be sometimes where we have to do things like you know temporarily restrain or imprison somebody or something like that. That's a political opponent and it looks to be in contradiction to the principles. But it's a very there's a very real you know component as well and so like i i don't think he tries to resolve them but i think he does mm-hmm. recognize that they're there and so that while uh he's advocating like if you put him in the in the room uh about that discussion he's probably going to be on the side that's leaning towards the turn of the other cheek but he's not going right. to say that the other side that's saying no we have to we have to lock this person up is completely wrong
0: i mean i think too though that he might actually say that it's completely wrong but only i only say that Maybe. because of what he what he introduces in his intro that I think we should come back to later on. Um, Mm -hmm. This part about like making sure that the left doesn't take on right wing approaches to um, securing freedom. And I think we can, like I said, we can talk about this later because I I know what you're talking about right now. And I think, at least Mm -hmm. I think I do. Um, Mm -hmm. And we should definitely discuss that in the end. We should come back to this um, in our third, maybe our third part. But I would say also, I would just counter that by going to his words in which he says, for example, he talks a lot about what it means to be free as well, free from oppression. And I think this is interesting as well, because he's basically arguing that even our understanding of freedom has come from the oppressor, right? And Mm -hmm. that freedom in the oppressor's terms is one that sort of, locks us into a fear of freedom. So it's like really, it's, it's, again, a lot of this book is like delving into contradictions. Um, Mm -hmm. But he says on page, I think this is like page 46 or so, 46 or 47 um, that the oppressed having internalized the image of the oppressor and adopted his guidelines are fearful of freedom. Freedom would require them to eject this image and replace it with, and this is super important, replace it Mm -hmm. with autonomy and responsibility Freedom is acquired by conquest, not by gift, and it must be pursued constantly and responsibly. Freedom is not an ideal located outside of man, nor is it an idea which becomes a myth. It is rather the indispensable condition for the quest of human completion. Like, holy crap. Like this line is like so, I mean, it's a a paragraph, it's not a line, but it's just so important, I think, because he's arguing for a type of freedom that we still haven't reached yet you know, it's one in which we're not just, it's not freedom about being libertine and doing whatever you want, but it's a freedom in which you also bear a responsibility for your society, for the person that you are, for the society that you live in. And one in which you can't just, freedom is not this idea, this like kind of um, an idea that's like floating around, that sounds cool, but it actually has to be lived. And it has to be one that that also i mean i i've heard this in other terms and i can't think of where but i've definitely heard this idea of freedom being responsibility right and making sure that it's not just it's not just an individual project of of not being oppressed but also engaging in constructing a society that is inherently not oppressive um and that one, a society that is transformative and that recognizes the human or the human being as a full human, again, it goes back to this discussion we were having earlier about rehumanizing people, right? Instead of taking their humanity away, making sure that we provide the conditions in which they are full humans um, and full, just full, pe- full members of a society. Um, mm. He also argues later on. That the pedagogy of the oppressed that he talks about in this book is one he says, quote, that must be forged with, not for the oppressed, whether individuals or peoples in the incessant struggle to regain their humanity. This pedagogy makes oppression and its causes objects of reflection by the oppressed, and from that reflection will come their ne- their necessary engagement in the struggle for their liberation. And in the struggle, this pedagogy will be made and remade. So again, it's this process of like understanding that it's not our job to tell people um, what like it's not our job to say. Oh, go free yourself, right? But that the oppressed will recognize this and recognize that once they understand their conditions, will take on the struggle themselves to regain their own humanity. You know, it's not, and it, in some ways, this can, this is kind of a contradiction because it can make the, it can also make the book sound like he's like pull yourself up by your bootstraps humanity if that makes
2: sense <laughs>
0: like yeah. just free yourself you know like you could do it
1: that, but, that that phrase came to mind earlier but.
0: yeah <laughs> but I think that that is it's like if, if I'm going to defend bootstrap mentality this is the only place maybe because i right. think i think in this case if you're recognizing yourself as a human being as a con, you know contributor to society you're recognizing what is your state of oppression maybe someone may have introduced it to you but you're the one who's fully coming to terms with what your condition is you're coming to terms with the systems that are oppressing you and then you are coming up with the ways that are best to overthrow it i think in this sense it is it's very like gramscian in a lot of ways too we can talk about that later, but I think that the, in this case, this is the only time I would defend Bootstrap's uh, ideology because it's toward freedom and not one towards basically how to fit back into the capitalist system, you know?
1: Yeah, well, and one of the things, uh, like, it uh, it go back a little bit, uh, I think it might, I I didn't put a page number right on it, but I, it was mm. around the 47, 48 Uh, The quote was, when they discover within themselves the yearning to be free, they perceive that this yearning can be transformed into reality only when the same yearning is aroused in their comrades. And it goes on to say, but while dominated by the fear of freedom, they refuse to appeal to others. Mm. And that felt like one of those, you know, I'm reporting this tweet because I feel personally attacked kind of moments, (laughs) 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 particularly the second line. But like, uh, uh, you know. Uh, i think that's an important part though is that you realize quickly as soon as you start to free your mind and you start to realize these contradictions and you start to engage with it you realize rather quickly i think that that individually you can only do so much but that in order to actually change these conditions you're going to have to have other people come to these same uh you know realizations mm-hmm. and and what he's saying and i think driving home the point is that you know it has to be a process in which it's an engagement, not you can't just go tell them, hey, you know, wake up, sheeple, like <laughs> that doesn't <Right>. work. <laughs> He's like, you're gonna have to actually, it's gonna have to be an engaging process. And he goes on later, and we'll probably get to the quote itself, but to talk about how that goes. But I, before I go there, uh, I just wanted to mention uh, that he also talks about how on page 48. How people prefer the you know gregariousness to authentic comradeship, which means mm-hmm. that sometimes it's easier to you know go along to get along, you know be pleasant, be happy than it is to you know Wendy took a contradictory position to something I suggested just moments ago, and it's like it wasn't a big thing, but that's not always comfortable, and sometimes okay. it is a bigger thing, and sometimes it's important to say those things publicly and it's it's not always easy to to say all those types of things, and so like. I felt like that's a challenge uh, to those that are, you know, trying to to raise their consciousness that you're going to be confronted. And uh, you see this a lot with like, you know, whether it's confronting racism or sexism in, in, in person or online, when you see something, you know, say something, but not in like an Islamophobic, you know, 911 white people wave in a hey, Uh, you know, I'm seeing something wrong. So I'm going to say something and stand up Mm -hmm. for a person that's being taken advantage of. And so type of way. And so like uh, those, uh, like, I think that that's really important. And one of the things that I think you mentioned before about how this text was written or asked about how this text was written. uh, A lot of these things individually can be taken out of context, like the whole bootstraps argument, I think. Mm -hmm. But when, when you take it in the context of the entire text which is a luxury of book format is you can say hey no wait i wrote about that there too go back to this part uh mm-hmm. like uh, uh that i'm i'm harkening back to a conversation me and wendy had off air uh, about uh, the format of twitter sorry <laughs> for those <laughs> some of this doesn't make sense anyway but those those quotes in that process and you mentioned uh the you know the pedagogy of the oppressed the a pedagogy which must be forged with and not for the oppressed I also like underlined and bolded because like it is kind of that bootstrap argument but it the when you take it in the context of what he means by you know forged with and not for it becomes so uh, pivotal to the whole rest of the argument the whole rest of the book I think
0: and I think he kind of predates this discussion that we've been having we as a, like our society in the United States have been having recently about the like picking apart this idea of the ally right and I've seen said in a very nice way, like, don't be an ally, be a comrade, because an ally is just, like, looking on and, like, giving you a clap every now and then, like, I'm cheering you on, whereas a comrade is, like, fighting with you, like, fighting alongside, I should say, fighting alongside that person. Um, and I think that he he basically says that in a much more, you know, like, in a more um, depth like in a more in-depth and theoretical way. But basically that's his argument, you know, like, don't, don't just be an ally. Like, don't just, don't just do it for someone. Don't just say, Hey, you're oppressed. You should probably work on that. You know, like actually fight with them, listen to them and shape your response to oppression based on their needs. You know? Um, And I think he also, the other thing that's great as well, um, later on in this chapter on page 49 he says uh, with regard to the individual oppressor um, that discovering himself to be an oppressor may cause considerable anguish, but it does not necessarily lead to solidarity with the oppressed, rationalizing his guilt through paternalistic treatment of the oppressed, all the while doing what, well, sorry, all the while holding them fast in a position of dependence will not do. And this reminded me so much of like the false feminist. So you see like, you know, the bro feminist types were like, oh, I'm, I'm super feminist like I because I know all these feminist phrases and I know the right words to say, but I'm still in my private life oppressing women in some way, right? Um, and I think you can say the same thing about people who are like outwardly quote unquote woke or outwardly pro, quote unquote anti-racist allies, but then they're not actually living out those practices in their everyday life. They just know the right things to say, you know, um, and they don't want to get down and dirty and get feel they don't want to feel uncomfortable they don't like being challenged on where they too are messing up and they're engaging in in some i mean another good example of this too even was like elizabeth warren's recent debacle because what she did is after she was told multiple times by indigenous people that what she was doing was not okay she then got a dna test to appease donald trump or challenge donald trump but then used that dna test to then throw it back in the faces of Native Americans who were also challenging her. And it's paternalism, right? Because she's saying that I know better than you and because she was made uncomfortable as someone who was engaged in a form of oppression. Um, And I think we just, again, I think a lot of this book, what's so great about it is like, it was written in 1970, I believe, but it feels so relevant to our present state precisely because he's grounding it in so many really basic like communist um, ideologies, which which I think is also what makes the book worth reading, because it's like you can kind of get to Marx by reading this. You can, you can hear Marx speaking through a lot of what he's saying, but you're also hearing all these other influences, which I think make the book uh, really strong.
1: It's, it's funny you mention that because I was just looking at a quote that I had picked up from there that mentions Marx specifically that says, what Marx criticized and scientifically destroyed was not subjectivity, but subjectivism and psychologism Uh, And it goes on to say, just as objective social reality exists not by chance, but as the product of human action, so it is not transformed by chance. If humankind uh, wants to produce social reality, which in the inversion of the praxis turns back upon them and conditions them, then transforming that reality is a historical task, a task for humanity. Which again, woof, man. (laughs) 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 So, like,
0: like break that down for us. What is he saying? I mean, like, what does he mean? Perhaps what by the... this,
1: this is kind of uh, a bit of, and the page and the surrounding text contains more, but uh, kind of his take on a bit of ID uh, politics and uh, kind of the subjective view, and you know, it's like my my personal experience is valuable versus an objective reality of you know this is the statistical reality of what people are experiencing, mm-hmm. and and so like what he says Marx. what he suggests Marx did was not you know destroy uh subjectivity the value of an individual individual's experience but the concept that you can either uh, you know build a reality strictly off of each individual's experience or that you can build it just based off of a larger statistical kind of analysis that it's an interaction between the people and the world as it exists and that we mold it 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 exists the world exists as we've created it Mm -hmm. in many ways particularly these social structures and these oppressive structures that feel uh you know as feel almost natural or we're told are facts or states of reality or you know natural phenomena among humans you know greed selfishness some of these things like some of these concepts like to what degree these things exist innately in our dna and uh you know manifest and to what degree they exist as a result of nurturing in in these oppressive systems, we can't say for sure. But uh, we do know that that there's a, a value and an interest in a segment of society perpetuating the idea that these are inborn, these are natural states, these are beyond our control. And what he says Marx and this text essentially are doing are challenging that notion and mm-hmm. saying that no reality is a construction that we've made together and just as we've built it we can change it and and we have to believe that and, and he goes on to talk about uh the, how that's uh you know the faith and the and the positive thinking or some of the uh-huh. some of the flowery stuff about how that goes about but i think he grounds it in some very real concepts but i don't want to jump ahead without covering uh any other selection so
0: no, I mean I think that that again goes back to like what we sort of were hinting at earlier about he's how he's rejecting a fatalism. So he's not but I think at the same time like some people again like with the bootstraps freedom thing, sometimes I think people can take a line like that. They can take a line like that and think it means like don't ever talk about the past and like don't ever talk about how we got to the oppressive state that we're in, you know? Like
2: mm-hmm. but I
0: think I don't I don't I don't read him as saying like don't recognize the past or don't recognize the state of oppression. In fact, he's arguing for us to actually understand why and how we are oppressed prior to getting to the point where we're liberating ourselves from that, right? So, the first mm-hmm. one of the first steps for the oppressed to free themselves is to understand the source of that oppression and to understand the history of that oppression, right? Um, and I think that there is a real gap like some people don't want to grapple with that history because again it makes them uncomfortable right it makes for them to have to acknowledge this is how i am an oppressor no one wants to be an oppressor right (laughs) like you Mm -hmm. know you don't no one wants to be like oh yeah i'm i'm involved in like the continued oppression of another group no one wants that and i understand why um but i think it's also you know this is part of the process that he's saying like you have to get beyond that if you actually want to like work towards freedom then you have to get beyond your own, like you have to work beyond your own state as an oppressor. You have to understand that and you have to be willing to kind of, um, I don't want to say renounce it because it's not, it's not quite like the privilege argument, but like stop engaging in practices that are actually oppressing others, right? In some cases, um, there are actual practices that people are engaging in that are oppressive um, and they have to be able to acknowledge that and stop doing them. And then as he further notes like you have to then go along and fight alongside the oppressed and not tell them how to to recognize their not not to see their own conditions right you have to fight alongside these people
1: yeah um, you don't you don't tell them standing in the street is the wrong way to protest you go stand next to them
0: <laughs> exactly exactly yes that's exactly it um i think though the other thing that that raises for me and i sort of hinted at this in our discussion of the oppression like one of the questions i had is like how he defines oppression um and what like we know what oppression means just in general but he, in the first two parts and in the intro he doesn't quite have a working definition of what oppression means. And I think he, this is something that he kind of unfolds. Um, but on, I think this is, let me just get the page number again for those who are reading along or who are like, who want to find specific quotes. On page 55, he says uh, in the middle of the, the page, never in history has violence been initiated by the oppressed. How could they be the initiators if they themselves are the result of violence? How could they be the sponsors of something whose objective inauguration called forth their existence as oppressed? There would be no oppressed had there been no prior situation of violence to establish their subjugation. Violence is initiated by those who oppress, who exploit, who fail to recognize others as persons, not by those who are oppressed, exploited, and unrecognized. So I think... um, This is important for us to to look at because what I've recognized and seen sometimes in certain dialogues or certain discussions about oppression um, and things like racism, classism, fill in the blank. One of the things that I've noticed is that sometimes people rely on this sort of um, model in which they say there's a larger oppressor. Like for example, capitalism is the main thing that we should be fighting and, and not fighting one another, which like, yes, I agree with, but also, We have to recognize the ways that we can actively engage in the oppression of others by virtue of certain behaviors and practices. And I think we have to be careful, like, not to point only to one source of oppression, but to understand that oppression takes many different forms. And so, like, if he's saying here that never in history has violence been initiated by the oppressed, then that means, for example, that like, even if a man beats his wife, wa- sorry, even if a man who beats his wife is poor and he's technically oppressed on the level of class, he might be the oppressor on the level of like his physical power in in relation to his wife. Right. Um, There are all these sorts of like smaller examples of oppression that I think he in some ways is pushing us to kind of pay attention to. Like he's saying, look at the system, but also to recognize that the system can play out in smaller, more individual examples um, that also interrupt the rights that others have to be human beings and human subjects. It's like it's an act of dehumanizing others that is also um, that also exists in these like one to one relationships, if that makes sense. And I found myself kind of asking, like, where I guess where do we draw the line? Right. Like if if someone else is also being oppressed, then are they like, can they also be oppressed? I mean, he seems he seems to kind of say no, but I don't know if I agree with that? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to read it because he said, he says, there would be no oppressed had there not been a prior situation of violence to establish their subjugation. And then he says that people who are oppressed cannot initiate violence if they themselves are the result of violence. So it, 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 it almost seems like to me that he might be asking us to look at the larger systems of oppression that then recreate smaller versions of oppression. But I don't know if I'm okay. I don't know if I'm, if I'm like comfortable with that because then I say, well, what about, but like we, it's hard for me to look at this bigger state of oppression. If I'm being oppressed as an individual by another individual, if that, I don't know if I'm making sense, but it kind of left me with like a question mark.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I, th- I think I think I understand what you're saying. I, I guess for me, I did kind of interpret it in such the way that he's. It seems to me he's making at least the argument that whoever in even what I grabbed, maybe I'm just totally misreading it, uh, is that when you have an individual uh, case of you know one-on-one oppression, that even in those situations, the the oppressor in that situation isn't uh, initiating it. Uh, perhaps in that instance, they are, but that they only exist because of this larger oppressive uh-huh, system, uh-huh. and so that doesn't absolve them from responsibility but speaks more towards uh, like an explanation rather than a right. uh, uh, you know, an excuse, right? And no,
0: I agree with that, yeah, I agree with that,
1: and um, I guess uh, that's that's kind of what I was pulling from that, mm-hmm. uh, and then also when he goes on to say that. For the oppressors, however, it is always the oppressed uh, (parentheses) whom they obviously never call the oppressed. But depending on whether they are fellow countrymen or not, those people—the blind, the envious masses, savages, natives, uh, subversives—who are disaffected, and that they are the ones who are violent, barbaric, wicked, ferocious. So, like, so when they look at you know high crime areas in an impoverished area, the explanation is that it's those it's those people who are you know the blind or envious masses uh, the bar and they're acting barbarically you know robbing and stealing and shooting because not because of the system right. but because of they, they personal foibles in them and i think i feel like what he's trying to do is he's trying to articulate a challenge to that and and suggest that no that the violence that we see in 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 uh, these impoverished areas is not originating there it originates uh-huh. through these oppressive systems i guess that's that's what i'm right
0: putting. yeah no i agree with that and i think that is i mean i, I have no doubt that that's what it, that is what he's saying but i guess maybe my question is framed. i should frame it as like what do we do however with one-to-one forms of violence right so if we see for example mm-hmm. um acts of i don't know racism or sexism rape violence etc that are played out by people who themselves are subjects of this oppression right so like let's take r kelly for example since he's on everyone's minds right now because that's what we have been talking about right r kelly himself was a victim of of sexual abuse right um r kelly also then grew up and engaged in acts of in very extreme sexual abuse towards other people um and so then while we can say on a larger level right like r kelly is the product of abuse that he himself uh, was suffering right he's a he's a he's a victim on on the one hand but he's also a producer and oppressor of violence on the other Um, how do we kind of reconcile our discussion of systems without also as you mentioned earlier like without absolving I think it's, it's mainly just like a caution that we have to we can do both maybe like perhaps we should understand and try to eradicate these problems that oppressive systems create within our communities, um, first and foremost, but that we also not, that it also, it also doesn't, I think then it kind of fits into this question of like the, or the, the caution that Freire gives earlier, where he says, if you're an oppressed person, don't become an oppressor right try to actively fight that urge and i think that that's maybe where these maybe where i can kind of reconcile these two things so like we can address systemic abuse we can address structural abuse but we also have to be able to address moments when people who are oppressed then turn on other oppressed people right and we have to be careful not to not to just look to to systemic um causes or structural causes of that and also like you know what i'm saying like if i don't know if i'm making sense but like we have to also fix it on these one-to-one levels there needs
1: to be like an immediate system uh, like an immediate accountability Mm -hmm. And, and reconciliation process that happens in the moment and at the individual level not just uh you know in the revolution society level
0: Right. Like I think and I think that's where he kind of gives us room to do both. Like with his like I said, with his earlier comment where he's like, if you're an oppressed person, don't engage in practices that you've learned from your oppressor. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is because when we were talking about it earlier, we were talking about it more in terms of like if you're an oppressed person and you become you enter into a state of power at some point don't then oppress your prior oppressors. But we didn't talk about how like oppressed, formerly oppressed people, this is so complicated because we keep using the same words, but formerly opp- formerly oppressed people can also then oppress other formerly oppressed or continuously oppressed people. Like this access to power question becomes a matter of like how you wield that power and you have to be careful not to wield it in a way that repeats the violence that you yourself have been subjected to. Um yeah but i think I think that's how he kind of answers my question in other words so i i i use i tried to use fideity to answer my own question, but I think that's maybe what he would how he would address that too perhaps
1: well, and I think one of the questions that's kind of begged in in that in general is that in kind of the deeper contradiction that's a little bit harder to to reconcile. Uh, I'm going to lean on Bob Marley for this, though, is uh, (laughs) uh, is there a place for the hopeless sinner who has hurt all mankind just to save his own? So Mm -hmm. it's like, is it for the worst among us, for the the, the most vindictive and and worst people? Is there a place for them? Is there is there is there something for them? And he says, believe me, one love. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think what he's saying, he's leaning on Frere's love and this uh, this consciousness making in that. Well, maybe not in the literal sense, does that mean that everybody will come to this place, but that we have to believe that they can. And uh, I think Freire goes back to the faith and, and, and believing. And I think that also built heavily on the, the theological background that was around a lot of these movements at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. And perhaps also another answer to this question is not just the reliance upon um, recognizing the humanity of others and the need to extend love to everyone, but also this prospect of like consciousness raising again, you know, like the person who is engaging in oppressive practices, despite they're also being oppressed, it has to just reach a point of consciousness, right? Who has They have to recognize how they've been oppressed and how they're repeating that kind of behavior, how they're enacting that behavior upon others. Perhaps it's also a matter of that person learning and unlearning, if that makes sense, like un, unlearning the lesson from the oppressor. Um, and I think with people like, you know, again, to use R. Kelly, like he's someone who never unlearned that, like he never went to counsel, he never got help for what happened to him. And so most likely that also explains why he continued to repeat it, you know? Um, and I think that, that that is is a moment where we can say maybe if there had been some sort of intervention um, and some way to have R. Kelly make Come to terms with the violence that he himself experienced. Perhaps he wouldn't then engage in enacting violence upon. I mean, we'll never know because it's too late at this point. Um, but you know, just something to think about. Like if we, if we also can create, mm, like if we could, if we could somehow create a society in which there were these moments of preventing, re- prevention or preventing people who have been oppressed from enacting oppression, and and sort of forcing us forcing ourselves in a lot of ways not only to recognize how we're oppressed but the ways that we've internal i think this is his way of basically saying like internalized oppression right um how can we undo those lessons how can we unlearn that kind of behavior um and i think that's a that's kind of the hard part you know and it's something that he also talks about a lot he's like Mm -hmm. that's one of the first things we have to unlearn we have to unlearn like um because he says for example that Uh, This is on page, it's on around 63, 64. He says, the oppressed must see examples of the vulnerability of the oppressor so that a contrary conviction can grow within them. Until this occurs, they will continue disheartened, fearful, and beaten. As long as the oppressed remain unaware of the causes of their condition, they fatalistically accept their exploitation. So in other words, what he's saying is like, we have to understand where where the oppressor is also weak um, and if not, we continue to rec- we continue to just see that like we are, we continue to think that our oppression is like a given. And I think sometimes, I think that also kind of relates to what we were just talking about, because what happens is like, if you understand a weakness within the oppressor, then you can understand as well, a weakness in the lesson that you've learned from them, right. In the, in the behavior that you've taken on from mm-hmm. them, or the behavior that you've inherited as a type of, this is what, being a man is, or this is what being, you know, XYZ citizen of the society means. You should be violent. You should be uh, aggressive. You should be sexist, whatever. You should be racist. I think if once we start to recognize a weakness in that, that power and that form of power, then we too can kind of correct our, we can auto correct, you know, we can say, okay, this is what Mm -hmm. we shouldn't, this is an example of what we shouldn't be. And we shouldn't replicate.
1: No, yeah, absolutely. No, I was just thinking I I found the quote and I realize now it's in chapter three. It's one of the reasons it it wasn't coming up uh, Mm. so far was. But I just want to say part of it uh, just because I've mentioned it several times. So I want to get it in there is that at the point of the encounter, there are neither utter ignoramuses nor perfect sages. There are only people who are attempting together to learn more than they know now. And dialogue further requires an intense faith in humankind faith in their power to make and remake to create and recreate faith in their vocation to be more fully human and to you know this is to raise the consciousness and he also says that you know but it isn't a blind faith later but with i will go into it more in the part that addresses that but i just want to mention that just mm-hmm. because i think that that really uh, underlines a lot of what we've been talking about so far and uh really relates back to the points that you're making about uh how we're going to have to move forward and i think part of the problem going again a little bit further back to the twitter conversation that i alluded to earlier is that twitter does not Serve as a great platform for this dialogue and for the type of nuance that you introduced to the conversation in in this situation regarding R. Kelly. Uh, in a Twitter situation, it's likely to be taken out of context or to be misinterpreted, either mm-hmm. right or interpreted correctly as being a malicious attempt versus you know being in trying to do what we're I described there a dialogue where we're trying to further and better understand the the reality of the situation and how to help everybody involved in the situation become more human, but without disregarding or taking, uh, uh, not properly accounting for the distinctions and differences in the nature and power dynamics at play in these relationships. Mm Yeah. It's like the, the while, while, you know, I want R. Kelly to uh, have be able to, you know, be, be more human. I recognize the damage that he's done puts a priority at the, at the, at the people that have suffered that damage yeah you know, exactly and, and so like in articulating those things on t- Twitter or in short quotes or without people who have developed a relationship or an understanding of where you're coming from and in a larger sense, it becomes really hard and and that nuance is taken away, and with most people engaging, in you know 280 characters or less uh, at a time, and, and and or gifts or all those types of things, and and dunking <laughs> on people getting more attention than you know thoughtful or nuanced critique, and then you know people that with not just you know with letters after their name for the sake of it, but who are both engaged uh, academically and then materially at the at the level of people in the streets and how this applies, and, and you know putting it into practice, and in all people getting lumped together. Just because they say the same thing, even though they're articulating it from very different perspectives, mm-hmm. and so like, uh, uh, Twitter doesn't lend itself to it, to our, to it. But we have to. I think this the text challenges us to have to find those conversations. And if you're not going to, if we can't find them on Twitter, or you know, we only find they constantly get interrupted. That means we're going to have to engage with people uh, elsewhere.
2: Right.
0: So now we're moving on to chapter two. We're getting into the real nitty gritty of the educational ideology. So, Richard, why don't you head us off?
1: All right. Yeah, uh, this is really the, the the as the meat and potatoes, as some people like to call it, of what I think a lot of people uh, pull out of Frary. And uh, I wanted to start with just kind of uh, a conceptual thing that helped me digest the information that was in this chapter. Hmm. and and also that was uh i think applicable to the the things that i encountered today and so uh what Freire is uh, advocating for or ag- goes on to say is basically necessary is a uh, dialogical engagement with contradiction and uh that i think Stands in juxtaposition to what we commonly hear uh, in what I'm sure anybody who's on any social media or uh, talks about presents an alternative perspective to US imperialism or the white hegemony, uh, like uh, the phrase, what mm-hmm. and And uh, it's if you like Google it, you'll probably find the Wikipedia entry that you know attributes it to Russia. And the particular quote is basically whenever you know, the U S would say anything about Russia and they'd, they'd turn around and say, well, you're, you're lynching black people or Negroes. This was the turn of phrase at the time. And, uh, like that's supposed to be an indictment of Russia as if the United States doesn't do it. And I think even in the Wikipedia entry, it mentions Trump. But the reason why I bring all that up is because there's an important distinction there. And when you're dialogically engaging with a contradiction, it's not a reflexive call of hypocrisy, like, ungrounded in the aspects of reality or tangential to what you're actually discussing. Uh, it, it's like, it, that's what, what aboutism is supposed to be kind of articulating. And it's like, what it's supposed to be doing is investigating the themes and confronting the contradictions and raising your conscious contra- or the... I'm going to say consciousness raising uh, together. <laughs> 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 I I
0: think by the end of this podcast I want everybody to know how to pronounce conchi and chisa so. That's my conchi and chisa so. But go ahead. Yes,
1: consciousness I, I, raising. I I will practice definitely uh, when I am not when we're not recording. <laughs> but like uh, I would just say that in it that's something that I think I kind of recognized when I very first got involved with this project was that what I wanted to do, and is kind of the premise of this chapter, is I wasn't trying to, you know, say I read this text and now I'm going to teach you all what's inside of it. My my goal was to share my learning experience with all of you, and so to have, to discover this and that somebody wrote about it. And that it was a, like that this idea has been around and that I could have been taught about it caused all sorts of emotional reactions and so on and so forth. But uh, I was kind of consoled by something that I'm just going to briefly cover. That's at the beginning of uh, chapter three. And rather than read you the whole quote, I'm just going to kind of uh, pull out a piece uh, about the intense faith in humankind and the faith in the power to make and remake and create and recreate. Because uh that is the only thing that can keep my optimism for when I see what's going on every day uh, in headlines and so on and so forth, which I think we're going to come to at the end of uh, the section, yeah. but it's the only way I can get through it is having that faith. And uh, you know, Freire mentions it's not a blind faith, but that uh, it's still an intense faith to in us to be able to remake the world as we know it. And, so chapter two, I feel, is giving us some of the, 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 most, some of the most important tools that we're going to need. And so with that, uh, I'll get into on chapter or on page 72, Frey mentions in the banking concept of education, knowledge is a gift bestowed by those who consider themselves knowledgeable upon those whom they consider to know nothing, projecting an absolute ignorance onto others, a characteristic of the ideology of oppression negates education and knowledge as process of inquiry and so uh just to relate that quickly back to this whole project is uh as i mentioned before i don't think that i have some sort of ownership of this text i think that us reading it together you listening to my interpretations and and ideally the more feedback we can get the the better we're all going to absorb and uh Raise our consciousness together. And I think that that's again, our only defense against the oppressive, you know hegemony that is out there. And so when Frere describes this, I think that that's uh, one of the most critical points. Uh, if you had a comment, Wendy.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things too, that um around the same place, I want to say like seventy two or seventy three he talks about he uses a lot of different analogies to discuss what you're describing. Um, and so when you mentioned the banking um, process, you know, the banking of knowledge, as opposed to having transformative knowledge or interactive um, knowledge exchange, he also talks about education, quote, thus becoming an act of depositing in which the students are the depositories and the student or the teacher is the depositor instead of communicating. Right. So then it becomes this. Transactional process as opposed to one that's an actual exchange of knowledge, or as as we you mentioned earlier as well, like a dialogue, um, and something upon which people can discuss things and build upon each other's knowledge. Um, it just becomes like one person is telling the other, and one person has to memorize and receive and be sort of a passive agent, not an active agent, but a passive agent in the process. Um, I also really like too that he a lot of what he's doing he's kind of going pre-Marxian with us. Um, So for those of you who've read Marx or somewhat familiar with it, or even if you're not, um, Marx builds upon a lot of the ideas of Hegel, who was a German philosopher. Hegel is kind of an asshole and not a great person, um, but some Mm -hmm. of his ideas were interesting and I don't want to throw away, uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so you can see how People like Marx built upon Hegelian ideas, and then people like Freire built upon Hegelian ideals as well, or ideas as well. And on the same page, a little bit lower, he says that um, the teacher presents himself to, this is in the banking form of a uh, form of education. Um, the teacher presents himself to his students as their necessary opposite by considering their ignorance absolute. In other words, he just thinks you're stupid, right? Mm. Um, he justifies his own existence through this. And the students alienated, like the slave in the Hegelian dialectic, accept their ignorance as justifying the teacher's existence. So in other words, they accept that they're uh, in a passive situation, right? They see the, the teacher as as sort of needing their passivity in order to function and to um, kind of reiterate his power, and then he continues by saying, "But unlike the slave, they never discovered that they also educate the teacher, which I think is really important and just goes sort of goes back goes back to what you were saying earlier, in the sense that it's not a one-way street, right? and And what we're doing with this project is also not a one-way street. Um, I'm bad mm-hmm. about checking the curious cat. Um, but one of the things that I do a lot actually is when I'm on Twitter, I engage with people constantly, you know, like I'm getting I get questions about things, I get comments about things. I'm not, um, just like posting stuff and then leaving, uh, mm-hmm. leaving the computer or leaving my phone. You know, I am often interacting and trying to continue to at least learn from people in these interactions and also do what I can to like give people resources so that it's not just me, I know everything, but like here's what I learned from, here's what I can learn from you and here's how you can learn from other places where I learned. You know, it becomes a, um, a more interactive process instead of just me dictating.
1: I feel like it's a lot easier to do in person than it is on Twitter just because it's really hard to identify people's emotion or like motives when they're uh, like posing certain questions and uh, Mm -hmm. or, or making certain arguments Uh, and people. And it also, I think people are less inclined to go immediately to personal insults when they're face to face with somebody and their, (laughs) (laughs) their opinion or their worldview has been significantly challenged. But uh, I, I I, like uh, the theme that you point out is one that I think is very important about the kind of oppressive dynamics built into the banking education. And Freire mentions it several times. And for me, this I was exposed to this very early in like in first grade. I just happened to have gone to had the privilege to go to uh, a good, you know, uh, preschool so I was well ahead of most of the other kids in my class uh, when it came to math. And so when an assignment was given, I, I was done long before the assigned time period had elapsed. And so it was frequently that I had, they had to find something for me to do during that time. And uh, it started with, you know, something open, like, you know, like playing basically free time and play. And when the other kids started to, you know, like get upset about that or cause discord in the the classroom, I was put back to task to, uh, you know, more busy work. And that just didn't Mm. make any sense to me because I was like, wait, this is this is not stimulating to me. And if you're going to give me math work, why don't you at least give me something more complicated than the stuff that I've demonstrated I'm capable of doing? And I was like, oh, this place doesn't here. I'm not here to be educated. I'm here for something else. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so like, but for other people, you know if they can make that discovery in the workplace or in in a relationship or in you know a variety of different places where you see these dynamics at play or people who have uh, developed uh, into fitting into these dynamics take them outside of the teacher student uh, traditional dynamic and so Uh, When when we're going through, I just hope that people are able to find a way to connect this material to experiences in their own life, whether it's in the classroom or in the workplace or wherever else. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I I, one of the things I wanted to mention is he uh, does give a kind of uh, good breakdown of some of those oppressive dynamics in rather simple terms with like an ABC kind of format. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Uh, the banking, he says, uh, uh, the banking education, or, or on the contrary, banking education maintains and even stimulates the contradiction through following attitudes, practices, which mere oppressive society as, whole, as a whole. Uh, says and we're on page
0: 73.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> so it says that the teacher teaches and the students are taught. The teacher knows everything and the students know nothing. The teacher thinks and the students are thought about. The teacher talks and the students listen meekly. The teacher disciplines and the students are disciplined. The teacher chooses and enforces their choice and the students comply. The teacher acts and the students have the illusion of acting through the action of the teacher and and the teacher chooses the program content and the students who are not consulted. And this has always bugged me for a long time, (laughs) especially, especially in college. I was like, wait, wait, why does the syllabus come out after I've already in this class? Shouldn't I be able to look at every syllabus before? And this is I I went to college when that was not even remotely common. I know Mm -hmm. some colleges start to do that now, but like things like that now. And and also knowing educators, I understand why from the educator's perspective, why that happens sometimes. Right. Anyway, without digressing too much goes on. uh, The teacher confuses the authority of knowledge with his or her own professional authority, which she and he sets in opposition to the freedom of the students, and the teacher is the subject of the learning process, where the pupils are mere objects, and uh, that kind of object relation, uh, I think, is also, uh, you know, a throwback to Hegel, and then also Freire mentions elsewhere in the text, essentially, about describing objects and how an object exists outside of you it's not part of you or it's not a part of inside of your consciousness it's something you think about and so having that dynamic it turn makes a person an object rather than making a person an object rather than a person strips them of their ability and any uh, potential to engage in the kind of dialogical engagement it takes to better understand and shape the world
0: yeah and the thing too that I mean, I think this this part right after the list you read actually is also really key just to add to that. Mm -hmm. Um, He says on the same page, 73, the more quote, the more students work at storing the deposits entrusted to them, the less they develop the critical consciousness, which would result from the intervention in the world as transformers of that world. Um, The more completely they accept the passive role imposed on them the more they tend simply to adapt to the world as it is and to the fragmented view of reality deposited in them. And this part for me was like super important um, because you were talking earlier about how we have to really reflect on, or we should reflect on how this work also applies beyond the educational realm and into like our personal lives um, Mm -hmm. and our construction as like human beings. We're walking through the world, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, this section really get, this this one these few sentences really get at that because it basically tells us that you know we've been taught and educated to be passive objects and mm-hmm. so then how are we expected to make You know, ed really, ed truly educated decisions. How are we expected to take in news and information in a way that we actually think twice about it? Where we question things, where we consider other forms of knowledge, uh, where we don't take things at face value when we're told. I mean, there's so many examples of this in the news right now as we speak um the appeals to we're...
1: authority too or, or like yes. by by making a teacher the only source of knowledge then it makes p- people are like well i can only get knowledge from you know cnn or i can only get knowledge from right. x y or z
0: absolutely Continue. i didn't and mean so neither. i think this part is like super this this you know this what's going on on page 73 is like so key for me at least when i was reading it i was like yes this is this is like an ongoing problem, you know, um, mm-hmm. and we have to find ways to step out of this passive role that we're expected to remain in at all times, like for the rest of our lives, um, and to be more actively engaged. And that's hard to do. I mean, especially because you know we have lives, we have other things we have to take care of, we have to work, we have to make money, we have you know fill in the blank whatever tasks we have to um, engage in to survive. But in that process, we also have to make room. To really, as he noted, you know, critically engage and be critically conscious um, because it's, it's like for our own, because I guess I should say to not be critically conscious is to our own detriment, right? Because we're just told this is what you need to do. This is how things are. Accept it. Call it a day, you know, and that's really dangerous because we've seen how that plays out in real time um, when we just are told to accept things and we do, <laughs> you know.
1: Mm hmm. And I and I think Freire mentions and he describes it in several ways. But uh, uh, we talked a little bit uh, in the you know lead up to this covering this text and also in part one about a little bit about love. And I think this is what he's talking about when he says that you know engaging in this kind of dialogue is an act of love because it, when when you recognize the oppressive nature of the the teacher student. Uh, dynamic or the banking model or whichever way you're uh, wherever you're applying this you realize that uh the the when you're trying to help someone raise their consciousness or raise consciousness together like you're doing something that's on, like on par with you know feeding a hungry person that you just stumble a hungry stranger you know it's 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 an act of love because you know that the person uh you know needs needs not necessarily just help but you know is in need and you have uh, something of excess in which you can help provide and whether that's time, whether that's food, whether it's, you know, conversation, whatever that is, it's an act of love to share that with somebody so that you can help both understand and reshape your world together better. And so mm-hmm. like that, that kind of profound love is the type of, you know, love when I, when I mention that it's not the, you know, love heals all wounds, the, you know, like the kind of, uh, you know, superficial love that may be talked about in more or maybe more popular or conceptualized in most people's minds. And so mm-hmm. I, I figured this is a good time to talk about that. And on page 74, uh, Frey mentions, indeed, the interests of the oppressors lie in changing the consciousness of the oppressed, not the situation which oppresses them. Yes. The more the oppressed can be led to adapt to that situation, the more easily they can be dominated. And I think it's critical here just because it's easy to get confused when he says changing the consciousness is like, wait, isn't that what we're trying to do? It's like, no, when he's describing changing the consciousness, that's not the same thing as raising the consciousness. What they're talking, what he's talking about there is adapting your consciousness to accept the oppression, to Mm -hmm. to accept the the teacher student dynamic, to to meekly wait to be filled with information because. Oh well the teacher can't teach if we're always interrupting her with contrary information like uh you know slaves aren't you know immigrants or whatever so we we <laughs> like like we we have to, we have to just sit meekly and listen to her articulate the reality and just absorb it that makes us a good student and so like obviously that naturally fits into an oppressive dynamic in which they want to dominate you and so like that really stuck out to me and so that's when he's when when says changing the consciousness and that is very distinctly different from raising a consciousness and uh i can't help but notice how emblematic that is especially from from my perspective of the democratic party they are very happy trying to change how you feel about the oppressive situation rather than the actual oppressive situation itself and that when I say that this chapter helped me understand things, that was one of the key passages that really helped me understand why things are the way they are. And it's not necessarily malicious. Like you don't have to be malicious in this. You can, being a good student growing up would make you a prime candidate to enforce this type of Mm oppression.
0: But I think on that, on a similar note, when you were talking about the Democratic Party, one of the things that Sit out to me as you know they've gotten some of them <laughs> have gotten better at the language of oppression as well like articulating what oppression looks like sometimes but then not doing anything to change the structures that enable that impression impre- that um and sort of in the, mid- the right in the middle of the page he says quote the truth is however or sorry, he says at the beginning of that part, um, these marginals, so he's talking about marginalized people, need to be, quote, integrated or, quote, incorporated into a healthy society that they have, quote, forsaken. So he's saying this is the mentality that some people have when they see oppressed people as pathological examples of, quote, unquote, healthy members of society. He goes on to say, quote, the truth is, however, that the oppressed are not, quote, marginals Or people living out—they are not people living outside of the society. They have always been inside, inside the structure that made them quote beings for others. The solution is not to quote unquote integrate them into the structure of oppression, but to transform that structure so they can become beings for themselves. And I really, I really like this, and I think it—it kind of made me think about again what you were saying about the Democratic Party. So this idea that you know you take poor children and you bust them to a better school instead of like fixing the schools in their neighborhoods, you know, or mm-hmm. you, you give people vouchers to go to private schools or what I, I really thought of the literal education system when he was talking about this. Um, because in many ways we've seen that integration um, even on a racial front has not actually improved uh, the, the outcomes for poor black students, for example, just to give one example of many. Um, What we end up seeing is they're they're kind of forced into a system that doesn't accommodate them well, that doesn't take note of whatever um, issues they're dealing with. It doesn't work to change the situation at home. It doesn't work towards changing or fixing any, um, you know, learning disabilities or any sort of issues that the child is having. It's just this idea that you can just take someone out of their environment, put them in another environment, and then everything will be fine. And it makes the assumption that the other environment is healthy, and that their environment is the one that's flawed and has all these problems when in actuality, like they're not considering in some cases, they being um, people who are encouraging things like charter schools and whatnot. They're not considering how with a few tweaks, the home environment could, the home environment in this case being the, the school can be fixed, can be changed, can be made better for the students. And it's not a matter of like bringing in you know, teachers from the suburbs to fix, quote unquote, the teachers in these inner city areas. Like it's never, it's never that. And I think, as I said, the outcomes show that this is not quite the answer. Um, And that instead of, instead, like I said, instead of, you know, uprooting, we work towards improving the local schools and fixing the problems that they have there. And also not just coming in and saying, this is what you need to do, but understanding that like the community members know what they need. And so you have to listen to them and understand what they want their schools to look like, what they want teaching to look like, and then go from there as opposed to, you know what I mean? Like it becomes a mm-hmm. sort of internal imperial and like domestic imperialism, what we see happening um, with a, a kind of outside influence or outside person telling a local community what they, quote unquote, need instead of listening and having them tell these outsiders what they need and want for themselves.
1: Mm hmm no I, I and to give an international example that comes to my mind is uh water projects throughout africa like mm-hmm. that that is if any like research into how those have worked out will will show you that oftentimes what ends up happening is the the actual uh needs of the community aren't considered or the sustainability of the project isn't considered and so uh what was meant to be a or at least I'd like to hope (laughs) at least is meant to be a a good faith and good natured attempt to help people that need it is ends up being coming either a burden or just uh, an embarrassment or, uh, you know, some other, like it uh, has negative ramifications on the society because they weren't consulted or really engaged with it Mm -hmm. or with the, with what the issue was and what would make sense for them to solve it. Or they end up with a well that's miles away or, you know, whatever, you know, in situate, And so I think that this is excellent and, and kind of highlights that and you gave an excellent domestic example. And I think that we see lots of examples of people talking about this at the time as well. And so like uh, beyond Frey as well, like uh, we really got robbed by not learning more about the revolutionary movements in throughout the 60s, both mm. domestically and internationally, at least I did in my public education. Yeah.
0: And we're learning, we're all of us, I think, not just public, but like all, cause I, I went to private school. I would say, I have to say like, I went to private school, but on scholarship. <laughs> um, but, you know, I didn't learn about any of that stuff either. I mean, I learned about all of this stuff when I was in college and then later grad school, it wasn't something that, you know, was part of my, I mean, we hardly even really talked about slavery and I went to one of the best schools in my city, but we did, we missed out on a lot of a lot of aspects of historical education. And I'm thankful that there are people like Fredy and others who wrote things down at least. So as an adult, I could go back and, and look at them and understand, you know, okay, this is, this is how other people thought at the time, and this is how they challenged systems that we're still contending with to this day, but this serves as some sort of guidance for us to perhaps move forward and, and do even more in the, into the future,
1: hopefully. Uh, the next selection I had was on page 78. So if you had anything before that, that you wanted to mention.
0: No, I'm good. Go ahead. All
1: right. Uh, the, so the next thing I wanted to mention is kind of addressing, um, I can imagine for most people, this is evoked some sort of em- emotion of frustration or anger or, you know, like, you know, whatever, a feeling like you can't do anything. And Frary actually mentions that on page 78 when it says when their efforts to act responsibly are frustrated when they find themselves unable to use their faculties people suffer this suffering due to impotence is rooted in the very fact that the human equilibrium has been d- disturbed that the or, but the inability to act which causes people ang- people's anguish also causes them to reject their impotence by attempting to to do something about it my quote actually got cut off so apologize for that but mm. uh, <laughs> but uh, I think what freire's saying there is that a lot of the frustrations that we feel the anger and the you know uh, just anxieties and a lot of the emotions that we feel are a direct result of this interference with our desire and need to be more complete and more fulfilled human beings by better understanding and shaping our world the banking depositing uh, like method of how our world works and the, the, the grueling natures of capitalism results in stripping this away from us it, it strips away our ability to stop and think about well hey you know this thing that i do 8 hours a day is is it really is it ethical is it is it a helping humanity am i am i helping a corporation exploit some marginalized person mm-hmm. like it's hard to like the whole system is designed to keep you from engaging with that and like From the very beginning when it comes to even just questioning your teachers every the whole system is designed to ostracize anybody who doesn't fit in who doesn't who doesn't who isn't trying to adapt to the system who isn't Mm -hmm. trying to kill that part of themselves that wants to ask wait a minute why why are we the wealthiest nature or wealthiest country in the world but there's people sleeping outside and People not getting with kids without access to food—that doesn't make any sense. Like, well, you can't challenge that contradiction or really analyze it because, well, then you might come end up discovering that capitalism is the reasons for that, Mm -hmm. and and that—and I mentioned earlier before—it's not always just malicious. Like, it being a good student, being successful at adjusting to the oppressive society, is rewarded. It's you get economic compensation for sacrificing that part of yourself the more you sacrifice generally the more you can make like uh, the 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 less empathy you have towards your fellow human being the more uh, capital that will help support your your cause the better and especially the better you are at covering that lack of empathy with false empathy or the paternal kind of billionaire donation scheme right uh well it's just like so with that in mind when i read you know Uh, that one of the things that popped up to me was uh, Martin Luther King Jr. when he said, you know, I'm proudly maladjusted. That's what this is. I feel like what he was talking about. I don't know to what extent he was familiar with this writing if at all, but uh, the same idea was being expressed that, that dismay discordance that you feel just by existing in the society isn't a problem with you so much as it's a problem with society and one of the things I discovered in thinking about this and discussing this material with other people is that a lot of aspects of society are built in this way as into outcast, to subjugate, to oppress, to uh, marginalize any view that doesn't fit or any anxiety that results in the participation of this oppressive system. And so like, uh, like you can see this in the medical field, you can see this in at, at the workplace, you can see this in education, you can see this in politics, you can see this any direction you look, you see the same kind of uh, oppressive dynamics. And uh, what I liked about this text is this gives us a practical alternative, if you can recognize it.
0: Mm-hmm. I think too that around that same page, and it goes back to something that I've been trying to like find some theory on, but I've always had this, idea, I mean, not always, but like recently, I've been kind of thinking about trying to develop this idea about capitalism breeding mediocrity, right? Because often there's a discussion that we've seen over and over about like how socialism or communism crushes creative thought and creative pursuits and whatever. When in actuality, if you consider that if people have their basic needs met, they then have the time and the energy to pursue, um, you know, creative uh, things and things that go beyond just working in order to survive. Um, polio
1: vaccine. That's all I can say when people say stuff like <laughs> about capitalism. <clears throat> that what did you say?
0: <laughs> it's totally what?
1: Uh, the The polio vaccine. Oh, got, yeah. <laughs> turned down seven, what estimated around seven billion dollars, because no, I actually just made this thing to help people. Why are you trying to, Turn it into something worth seven billion dollars. Ah, okay. Go on. <laughs> no,
0: I didn't know this backstory, but that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think on it's around, uh, I believe seventy-seven or seventy-eight as well, where he said he starts talking about um this idea of like oppression itself and control and and all of these kinds of limiting forms of education, like the banking concept of education, et cetera. It's all part of this oppressive model that then focuses more on killing things, on death, you know, than it does on, on creation, on love, on sparking new things. Um, and at the end, he talks about how a form of work, our form of um, just like living in our everyday cap- capitalist existence, right? Um, he goes to say, quote, it attempts to control thinking and action, leads men and leads women and men to adjust to the world and inhibits their creative power um and i think we see that in very in real time all the time you know i think we have um in many cases we're working to live you know we're not and and then people are living to work too i mean it's all it's all a cycle and i don't think there's very much space not only to question but there's also not very much space to create and to come up with new ideas and most importantly to have a kind of political imagination this is something you and i were talking about a little bit before we started recording um but you know we 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 keep seeing over and over that people are just settling for what's there and what we think is all we, we deserve because we, and for whatever reason, you know, we've, we've been sort of, not only have we been um, kind of uh, how would you say this? I mean, we've been conditioned technically to think in this sort of limited way and to think and to see our, the space of our potential as itself limited, but also to see the space and potential of the society in which we live as limited, which is just as dangerous, if not more so, because we say, well, this, these politicians who don't care about us or who are directly harming our communities are thus our only options. And therefore, we have to support one of them. We have to vote for one of them. We have to you know, donate to one of them. It's It's not sustainable at the end of the day. And it's something that continues to, it continues this process of oppression and it continues this process of not only murdering us, killing us physically, literally, you know, we have people dying because they don't have healthcare. We have people dying because they're overworked. We have people dying because they're not getting decent food access, all these things. But then also killing whatever is left of our brains, <laughs> you know, like it's it's taking away our ability to think critically and to question and to challenge the world we, as we see it. Um, so yeah, I think that, that section is also super important.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, just trying to take away what, in my view, a lot of what makes us human and mm-hmm. and really turn us into the objects, the fairy describes. And that I think a lot of uh, the top, es- the, the, you know, top wealthy echelons of society uh, would rather imagine us uh, so that as objects, it's a lot easier to, you know, uh, both exploit and then to, can, to celebrate your own, you know, recognition of their humanity on occasion. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot easier to, if people are objects to exploit them for profit and then pat yourself on the back for giving a little bit of that profit back to them. And so uh, one of the things I thought on page 79 that kind of stuck out to me and I think is towards towards what I mentioned at the top about the practical application of this text is uh, Ferry says, liberation is a praxis, the action and reflection of men and women upon their world in order to transform it. And that those truly committed to the cause of liberation can accept neither the mechanistic uh, concept of consciousness as an empty vessel to be filled, nor use of the banking methods of domination, propaganda, slogans, deposits. Uh, I think Ferry's using the more bourgeoisie uh, kind of connotations of propaganda here mm-hmm. uh in the name of liberation those truly committed to liberation must reject the banking concept in its entirety adopting instead a concept of women and men as conscious beings and consciousness as consciousness intent upon the world and they basically goes on and he repeats this several times but to just they must reject this banking model and instead choose a problem posing or you know dialogic you know, contradiction examining uh, education and this is, I think, where uh, uh, a lot of people, I know myself included, have struggled to kind of wrap our minds around, you know, it's like we see the effectiveness of shaving the truth or, you know, manipulating media or, you know, the whatever kind of deceptive uh, bumper sticker type slogans and those types of things. We see the effectiveness of those and it's really hard uh, or the you know the obstinence of the Republican Party or whatever it may be, uh, we, it's really hard not to want to uh, imitate those because we see how effective they look. Mm-hmm. And I think Freire challenges us to uh, that we and says essentially uh, 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 what I've heard from uh, Miss Lord, which is you know you can't tear down the ma- or paraphrasing here because I'm going to butcher it, but uh, you can't tear down the master's house with the master's tools. And so. I feel like Freire is suggesting that banking education model is one of the master's tools. And mm-hmm. if you, by employing that model in trying to inform the proletariat or trying to engage in consciousness raising, uh, you become self-defeating that uh, in imitating uh, the model, you reinforce the same hierarchical relationships between those with the knowledge and those without it that uh, sustain the very system that we're trying to disrupt.
0: <clears throat> I mean, yeah,
1: <laughs> and that's
0: like—I <laughs> know that's so basic. but you know, I'm—I am agreeing because there's pretty much the way he says it, and then the way you paraphrase it is clear. Um, maybe I'm call me a a receptacle in this case, or a deposit receiver, because um, <laughs> I'm listening. But I think that yeah, it's it's accurate, and I think that we have to. I mean, again, just thinking of. Of personal examples and and our, the way we live our everyday lives, the question then becomes: We've already talked about the challenges of that system. How do we then get beyond the banking model of knowledge? I've seen, you know, I think we've had discussions in education. Um, And people who study pedagogy and things like that lately, for those of anyone who's like been to high school or college in the last five to 10 years, you'll know that there's a lot more interactive engagement. Professors are doing more conversation based classes. Um, You know, teachers are using more interactive methods to get their students to think outside the box, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then my challenge then to perhaps these applications of Freire models of pedagogy the one, the challenge that I would raise is then: Are we recreating, uh, or are we are we sort of, are we kind of recreating a banking system of knowledge by using seemingly liberatory practices? Mm. Um, and by that, I mean just to clarify: Like, are we even if we have conversation-based classrooms, or if we let the students, you know, pick or add a specific text to the syllabus or whatever are we still reinforcing some of the same models because ultimately we still have grading. Ultimately, we still have a limit on the conversations that we have. Um, We have a limit on the perspectives that we engage. You know, I mean, in some cases it's like a question of safety, right? Like we can't have people spouting, you know, white supremacist thought during a classroom in a classroom discussion and accept it. Um, But I mean, in terms of challenging, for example, politicians or certain frames of thinking and ideology, and it's something that I've also run up against because I've had professors that I very much admire spout, you know, centrist, neoliberal style politics in a way that like runs counter to what they teach on an everyday basis or what they read on an everyday basis. So then the question becomes like, how much are we still, even if we, we have this veneer of like going beyond the status quo, how are we still kind of reinforcing it in our own way? Um yeah, I guess like where do, where, how how do we know if we're following Freire that we're fully meeting the needs of the student? Even if we're listening and we're applying these new methods, how do we know that we've reached that goal?
1: Mm-hmm. Where this manifests in my mind as uh, like black capitalism movements. And yes, where, <laughs> like that's that's what comes to my mind. It's like wait a minute. It's like black capitalism isn't solving the liberation problem. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't solve that. It, it just turns it just creates a different class of oppressors. That's a
0: really which, good example. Yeah.
1: And it's like, I, I, for one have been supportive of the concept of black capitalism and I still can't really be too negative on it because of the, just the general concept of the practicality of liberation movements can't be Robin Banks at this moment. So if you're gonna fund the liberation <laughs> movement. Uh, black capitalism is one of the, like seems like a viable, like one of the more viable options, like, uh, There's not. It doesn't. I I, one of the few things that I'm not able to pull out of this text is something that addresses that aspect—the the material conditions necessary in order to uh, achieve liberation—and achieving that without these oppressive systems. But like, uh, and so that's. I see this. It's uh, it's easier to uh, be critical of the educational philosophy aspect of it. It's harder to be critical of how we see the same problem with in same dynamics at play in, uh, black liber or like any sort of black organizations that are looking towards liberation, but are, uh, taking in any sort of significant money. Mm-hmm. And so like, uh, if, if it was like, are these, are these organizations, are they imitating the same, uh, hierarchical oppressive structures that they're allegedly, uh, you know, Trying to fight against, or are they attempting to, uh, you know, use their political imagination to envision new things, or take take notes or points from other organizations and structures that could help them not be reinforcing those kind of hierarchical and oppressive uh, systems? And uh, Wendy mentioned earlier, and we were talking uh, before we started recording a, a bit about political imagination, and for me, that's kind of. Uh, where i saw and some people may have not seen it and i'll qualify it by saying that it, there's plenty of problems with it but killer mike's netflix thing where he you know kind of basically just tried some outrageous ideas and i guess having looked into it a bit that some of them may have been staged and stuff but to the point uh that liberation is practice or praxis uh the action and reflection of men and women upon their world in order to transform it I feel like that was the value in what Killer Mike did was yeah. it, it exposed us and and stimulated our political imagination. He did things that people told him to his face, you can't do. And he's like, watch me and just did it. And it's like maybe he had to to stage some of it or whatever. But just like just doing that opens people's minds, I feel, to the possibilities of, hey, I mean, yes, climate catastrophe is on the horizon and nobody with political power has any plan to do anything that isn't going to cause you know billions of people to suffer that's just the fact of the matter but it doesn't have to be that way we can have an we can imagine a future that averts that disaster but we have to we have to work at it it's praxis you know (laughs) And, and we have to we have to inform ourselves educate ourselves Uh, and and learn and the problem for us is that we're on a deadline (laughs) we only have so much time before the consequences are so dramatic and so irreversible that survival becomes a priority over any sort of political organization and uh i think part uh, of it too
0: feels like part of it to me i think in terms of solutions it feels like almost that you have to pursue a kind of anarchic model right um, and because if we have systems that are inherently flawed and we still rely on i mean I was talking about this the other day on Twitter too like if we still rely on those systems, it's like this is the trap right we mm-hmm. We need to get like we the systems oppress us, and the institutions oppress us, but in order for us to have to file a grievance or to be remunerated for damages or to have some sort of solution, we still have to rely on the same institutions, more or less. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other problem is, you know, when we talk about, for example, alternative parties or third parties, those parties also have internal structural issues, they have similar problems of racism, classism, fill in the blank. Um, And you also see a kind of hierarchical structure. Um, And so things, even if they're the alternative They have a tendency to, and we talked about this in the first part of this discussion as well, when we talked about like revolutionaries who unfortunately sometimes um, inhabit and then enact the behavior of their oppressors that they had just overthrown. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we sometimes unfortunately have to grapple with this and still grapple with this. And I'm wondering, you know, what kind of is there is our solution then? going to need to be a moment of anarchy where we just tear everything down and we rebuild and we restart. And I think you can see historical examples of that where people, and even contemporary historical examples of that, where like, for example, in Greece, um, anarchists were doing a lot more work than the government was to help migrants, for example. Um, And so yeah, I mean, I I also like, for example, when Trump was elected, I kept saying like anyone who has any particular skills, whether they be legal, medical, psychological, whatever, you need to just go beyond the system, like screw having to work out of an office, go work out of your house and like have people come to you for free, like give medication to people for free, take from the office, like rob the office, you know what I'm saying? Like, do something to challenge What is the norm? Because people are, you're going to have to go beyond the system because the system right now and most of the time has not been checking for you. Like they're not going to help you. If you have a president that, you know, gives tax breaks to the wealthy and screws over all people who require, you know, prescription meds and you're a doctor, you're in a position where you can literally help medicate people off the record. You know what I mean? So there has to be some sort of... I think our, our most conscious response is going to be one that goes beyond the systems that we know and understand. And that's going to take a lot. It's going to be unconscious might be um, one of the only ways for now for us to really truly challenge um, these systems that we've been critical of.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think the challenge for those that, that feel that way becomes then like how do we identify allies or people that are close to coming to these similar realizations or feelings mm-hmm. but aren't there yet and then how do we distinguish them from those that are uh, either just too stubborn or actually are aware of all this like un- understand these dynamics and have just chosen the other side mm-hmm. like, and, and that i don't have an answer for <laughs> right? And, and it right and it's not as though that people can't like can't like seemingly flow from one to the other like and that even and that as we mentioned as wendy mentioned before that even revolutionaries can become oppressors and so nobody is immune it's always it, it's work and it's not just it, it's it's we are addicted to capitalism and addicted to the systems that we that, that are around and so like any addict it's going to be a daily a daily thing to to fight that addiction it doesn't matter mm-hmm. how long we're sober sober as an individual or uh you know clean from capitalism uh, as a smaller community as like a commune or anything like that none of those give you an immunity to to the deeper hegemonic addiction to these systems and so uh it, it's going to take a very conscious effort and lots of practice uh pr- both practice and praxis of Uh, you know, of these types of engagements and interactions with each other and with people on the edge to both better understand why they haven't, they don't see it the same way as, as Wendy or I may be articulating and, and what it would take for them to, to see it that way. Like, People that are willing or able to engage with those edge cases and don't get frustrated or just want to say, oh, okay, whatever you're fucking imperialist," <laughs> like, <laughs> like the people that have the patience to deal with to deal with that. It's very valuable to then bring that to the conversation in a way as to not be emboldening the case for whatever it may be—imperialism, white hedge money, whatever—but to be saying, "This is how they are viewing the situation, and this is how they want it resolved." So, if we want to help them understand why that doesn't work or why this is better. This is where we need to approach the situation from. And so like, uh, one of the things that I've seen a lot recently is just a lot of overlap between, uh, critics or like critiques of the democratic party, uh, that you don't know if you don't click and look whether the person who said it is, uh, you know, a Trump supporter or, uh, somebody far to the left of the democratic party. Mm. And, like, you know, liberals will be like, oh, horseshoe, there it is. Like, but no, what that what I feel like that demonstrates is a a potential possibility of uh, exposing a uh, a common realization. And so uh, maybe 95, 99 percent of the, those people that uh, are doing that, that are a Trump supporter, but then like a comment uh, critical of the Democratic Party are essentially relatively uh, unsalvageable from like a far leftist perspective i i hate to say that and i i would put a thousand qualifications on that but i think people understand what i mean mm-hmm. uh that one percent of that few people is like those if you have love for humanity those people are worth saving or worth helping or worth sharing consciousness with and and helping us both understand Our realities better so that neither one of us are being stifled or oppressed by the system whether we're supporting it or not and so like for me and I guess this is one of the things I I have an abundance of when I compare myself to other people is a level of empathy for some of the the oppressed the most oppressive people in the system and recognizing how the system uh, oppresses them as well and uh, prevents them from Lip being complete people as well, which Frere touches on as well in the text, but that really stuck out to me is that, and has always been an issue for me is how do we appeal to a billionaire other than cutting off their head? Because like, mm-hmm. I understand, I understand the feeling, but I really like to avoid that because that doesn't feel like that aligns with my, my morals or my ethics or my ideology. Like uh, I understand the sensation, the emotion, the, and sometimes even the justification but I would really love to have a philosophy or in a political philosophy that gave me something besides a guillotine for a billionaire. And so <laughs> <laughs> I think Prairie does that by articulating the oppression or like how the oppressive dynamics uh, by being an oppressor, you haven't liberated yourself either. So even right. the mo- even, even the people at the top of this oppression uh, hegemony, they're not free either. And like uh, their oppression is different and uh, it looks pretty nice comparatively uh, to like a lot of living conditions, but there's a reasons why you can find people in the most destitute parts of the world with smiles on their face all the time. And you can find some of the most depressed people on the planet in the most lavish of surroundings. It's because, the the fulfillment of your consciousness isn't something that you can achieve through capitalism or and capitalism doesn't reward it and so you'll that's why i believe you can find a lot of happy people that are of li- low, little means and a lot of unhappy people that have more means than you can imagine Right.
0: I mean, one of the very clear examples that I can give is Brazil, actually, like major cities in Brazil. There have been very good books written about this um, particular like phenomenon. But um, and if you go to very large cities in Brazil, like São Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, these areas, what happens is you'll notice that wealthy people live in like four. Um, but basically, they have barbed wire security cameras, tiny windows. They live in these high rises that like, you know, you you, like they have maids and gardeners and all these things like these people in their house, nonstop all the time. They never have any real privacy. They never have any real um, sense of, of peace because, and they, you know, they drive around in, um, uh like bulletproof windowed cars and things like that Mm -hmm. and it's a kind of it's a protected existence but it's also like a self-policed existence they can't just live free because they live in constant fear of being robbed or being harmed in some way and like i don't feel sorry for them so just to make that clear to anyone listening to this (laughs) i'm not saying pity the rich but my point is to say that they too are um, they're living in a prison of their own making, right? because they've, inherit, they've they've either inherited or created so much wealth for themselves or stolen so much wealth for themselves, to be honest. Um, and they're hoarding it. and this is their way of protecting it, but their way of protecting it means that they have to give up an aspect of their freedom. Um, and, you know, I think that that does go, that very clearly touches on what you were talking about earlier and what Freire touches on in the first part of the book, uh, where he's, he gives the examples of, you know, the oppressor or the seeming oppressor is also being oppressed. In some cases, it's, it's not necessarily on the same level, of course, uh, but Mm -hmm. it is something that is detrimental to his or her health and well being, and like adjustment in a, in a healthy society. Um, something similar I wanted to bring up. Or not similar, but I would say something that kind of touches on what we were talking about before, about, um, you know, how do we know we've reached the point where we can say, like, this is real freedom, or this is a real engagement of, like, breaking down systems that harm us. Um, I want to say this is page, let's see, let me check the page. It is page 81 at the bottom. He says, quote, education as the practice of freedom denies that man is abstract isolated independent and unattached to the world it also denies that the world exists as a reality apart from people authentic reflection considers neither abstract man nor the world without people but people in their relations with the world in these relations consciousness now i can't say it in english um, <laughs> in these relations consciousness and world are simultaneous consciousness neither precedes the world nor follows it and i think this is interesting too because we tend we at at least speaking as someone on the left and i think many leftists do this we get caught up in this sort of abstract idea of the world right we have Mm -hmm. a sort of idea of what we want and then we operate in a way that as if we're living already um and then at the same time you have some people who are so attached to the world and so so focused on the material reality that they can't see. They don't have the imaginative aspect, right? Um, and I think that this discussion on this page, where he kind of is talking about how to merge the two and how we have to understand that we have to understand and see people as they connect to their material realities, as they connect to these systems, as they connect to the world and discuss them accordingly and talk about solutions accordingly. Right. Um, so while on, in many cases, most of us want a, you know, full communism now, right? Like revolution Mm -hmm. now guillotine everybody and start from scratch. Um, we, unfortunately, I mean, I guess you could do it, but it may not yield, um, a real moment of reflection and understanding of what to do next and mm-hmm. i think that this is this and throughout the book actually because we already discussed this somewhat from the first part um he really does keep reminding us over and over that like you have to be grounded you have to understand the way people live you have to understand what's going on in people's lives how they're dependent upon and working within these systems and what we can do To not just see people as abstract, um, but also to think about them as, as I said, like people who are interacting with systems, people who uh, are relating to one another and relating to these different conditions and how to work with that. Um, I don't know. I just, I think that that part was like really interesting. Like I like the line education as the practice of freedom, thinking of education as something that is part of this freedom making process, right? The conscientious. So it's kind of nice and and well said i think
1: yeah for all the glorification of freedom uh like i i find conscientious so uh to be a much better reflection of freedom than having a gun mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean it depends yeah. on
0: who you ask but <laughs> yeah
1: well i mean i i mean I, I'm, I'm working on both i mean <laughs> it's like I'm, I'm not giving up one or the other but right. <laughs> like, i just as far as like i like uh Like you can get a lot of Republicans to to, like talk about how much they are freedom loving, you know, patriots. But then, like, if the freedom involves challenging the white, you know, hegemony, then, well, wait a minute, that's not freedom. That's oppression. You're you're (laughs) oppressing us unfortunate white males. (laughs) Stop. Stop pointing out that blackface in 1984 is offensive (laughs) Uh,
0: yeah for anyone who's just if you're getting onto this late we're talking about ralph northam he's currently still the governor of virginia but we'll see how that goes (laughs)
2: yeah
0: but yeah i think just a quick transition you know we've been hinting at it here and there throughout the episode but there's a lot of stuff going on in the news right now that is related deeply to what we've been discussing in the book Um, on a variety of fronts, like we've we've touched on some environmental stuff. Um, We've also touched on gubernatorial politics (laughs) as they relate to racism and things like that. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, like, again, we were talking about this off air a bit, but at present, as we are having this discussion, um, the U.S. has been engaging in really shady dealings with uh, Venezuela. And regardless Mm -hmm. of how you feel about Maduro, that's kind of irrelevant if you have a country of strong foreign power like the U.S. really set on invading another country and it taking away its sovereignty. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've grappled with or been challenged with over the, the past few days as this is unfolding is the fact that, you know, some people will say, oh, well, you're an American, you're from the U.S., you don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, but like I do know what I'm talking about. Like I am actually doing the research. I'm going beyond what we're told in the media and even in the media where they're going beyond. like there are some examples from for uh, the Washington Post, uh, The New York Times, very standard uh you know, sometimes right wing even uh, political newspapers or newspapers that that discuss politics and like they're even laying out that this is clearly orchestrated, being orchestrated by the United States. And there are all these steps that Mike Pence and Trump have been taking over the past few months to sort of enable this really rough transition, um, which I would argue was a coup between um the power that Maduro has under the previous elections and the potential power that Guaido will possess if he takes over as president of the country as several other countries who are all implicated because they're right-leaning and they want Venezuela's oil etc um have who have supported him. So I think it's you know it's a challenge at this moment actually. It's having I'm having one of those moments where I'm like no, I'm not going to just follow what the teacher says, because the teacher in this case, if you're going by mainstream media, if you're going by um, certain government powers, whether they're in the U.S. or abroad, are saying, no, no, this is the story. This is what's happening. But once you actually challenge that, and you go and do your own research, you start to really see that it's not quite the way it's being represented, the way it's being presented in the news. Um, And it's certainly not, once you understand Venezuelan history, it's certainly not a case of you know, one guy's oppressing his people and the U.S. wants to do something about it, but instead a continuation um, on a very long historical continuum of U.S. imperial power, European imperial power in Latin America um, and the scramble for its resources.
1: Mm -hmm. I feel like even liberals should understand that our president is Trump. Right. you (laughs) You guys remember Puerto Rico, like... Yeah. How in the world could you possibly imagine that anything we're doing for Venezuela is a humanitarian effort? Like how? Like right. how do you maintain that I like you have to know that it, at least at a minimum so long as Donald Trump is in charge of it, it is anti-humanitarian. Like is <laughs> it like it is there's just no way to reconcile like any sort of uh consistent critique of Donald Trump and then also support Him appointing a convicted war criminal to oversee uh, our influence in Venezuela, like regardless of whether you can envision it as a U.S. orchestrated coup or something less like that. that As a liberal, there's just no way that you can have a consistent worldview or ideology and and arrive at that conclusion, in my view. And so it's like, like, just think for a moment i mean i'm, I'm sure some most of people that listen to us are farther to the left but i'm sure that there's some people that are just getting exposed just like think about how little criticism or just like the media that will look at Donald Trump walking up to his jet to catch him with uh, toilet paper on his shoe and run that for hours hasn't been able to manifest much of a critical look at what Trump is doing and why it might be extremely problematic. Like it's just starting to get there now that they've realized that the, the initial attempt at the coup wasn't very successful. Like that, like anybody that's, that considers themselves a thinking person, I feel like has to really be challenging what they've seen in the media and the coverage and just how it doesn't align with just what they've just, how the media has covered the last two years. It just doesn't match uh, And so, like, that has to drive questions. And then when you start to look for those answers, you discover very quickly that it is what it looks like. It is the U.S. orchestra, in my opinion, it is the U.S. orchestrated coup for oil. Right. Period. And
0: it's not even, It's. I mean, at this point, like I said, it's. it's not even a matter of opinion when you have the Washington Post showing you. These are the steps that Mike Pence took to do this,
2: right? Like, this is not, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, as they're an, just an,
1: basically it, celebrating it or, or like ambiguous about it. Like, well, this is what's happening. It's not now they found their, their journalistic objectivism for this. That right. they, they, like now right. they found it.
0: But I mean, at least they're putting it out there. You know, like it's it's like there's no hiding what's going on. I think that's mm-hmm. what's what I'm trying to say is that even the most centrist slash right-leaning. Um, you know magazines and newspapers are literally saying to you this is what is happening so like don't don't misunderstand don't read don't try to read between the lines they're telling you what's going on you don't <laughs> even have to guess like it's like it reminds me of the situation with the the students the covington high school mm. students and the indigenous man and like people they're they're there with the MAGA hats like there's nothing else to guess guys like First of all, you know what I mean? Like, like people are like, well, maybe they're not racist. Or maybe, like, there's no made There's no guessing. Like, I'm looking at what I'm seeing. Right? I'm looking at them at a pro-life. I don't even like the anti-choice rally. I'm mm-hmm. looking at the nature of the school and its history. I'm looking at. The MAGA hats and their support of Trump, who, yes, is a racist president and a racist person and a classist person and an imperialist. And you're telling me that this conflict is not driven by racism. Okay, like, let's look at the sky and call it blue. Or call it red. Which one is it? Right. Is it blue or red? It's freaking blue. So right now what's happening is like we are being told by the mainstream press when they never really do this. It's very rare that they do this. They're literally laying it out for us. They're Mm -hmm. saying that, you know, for example, Trump threatens one of the opposition leaders not to run. So then in this last election, what happened was he threatened sanctions against one of the opposition leaders who was going to run for office. And so that's why you saw that the opposition in Venezuela did not run in this last election. That was a kind of curiosity moment. They were like, for, for several months, I remember hearing people say, mm-hmm. it's weird that the opposition didn't even run. And then they complained that the election wasn't Democratic because they weren't involved, but they're the ones who chose to sit out. Well, now we know from these mainstream outlets that Trump actually threatened one of the opposition leaders who was set to run so that they didn't run. Then the other thing I keep hearing is, oh no, this is constitutional. What, what, why though is doing is fine. But then when you go and actually look at the constitution, which, Hey, you can do, and you can see that it does his, his usurping of or attempt to assert power, even as interim president does not necessarily fall under the guidelines of like the emergency use of this constitution. Like it wouldn't, it would not fall under the categories under which, or the criteria under which someone could take over as president of the country. Um, And then the other thing too, that was weird to me is like, there's no real discussion of training that Guaido received. There's no discussion of how Mm -hmm. he's not well known in the country. There's no discussion of the fact that like half the people, or like, I think they said like 80% of the people polled at the time of Guaido's taking on this position as quote-unquote interim president. They didn't know who he was. You have yeah, He didn't people... even have
1: a popularity rating from some of right. the local pollsters <laughs> before this happened. Not even yeah. a popularity rating. And
0: you can argue, for example, you could say, okay, well, those polls are all run by Maduro or by Chavistas or whatever. Okay, fine. Let's take that argument and go with it. Even then, you have people who supported Guaido, who are living in Latin America, who are Latin American presidents, who speak Spanish fluently and it's their native language, who don't even know the man's name who can't even pronounce his name as they're <laughs> expressing support of his presidency. <laughs> so I'm sitting here like, wait a second. And then the other thing is like his praise of Bolsonaro. He is a fascist. Like anyone who's been paying attention, who's not mm. like a member of the KKK or a far right person, you can see that he's not a supporter of human rights, which is what Guaido praised him for in the tweet. Like look at what is happening. Assess it with your own eyes. You don't have to listen to me. Go look at articles. Go look at articles from any outlet and just Mm -hmm. piece together piece together the evidence. And then you tell me that if this were happening any other place, if it were involving any other president, that we would be okay with it. Like would it be okay if Trump had done this to Macron? Right, because we say, Mm -hmm. okay, Macron has people mad at him. There are people protesting in the streets. All accurate. There's an economic issue. Accurate. You know, he's been cracking down on some of this. I'm using arguments that are used about Maduro, right? He's been cracking Mm -hmm. down on his um, on people protesting. Okay, so then would we be okay with Trump invading France? And. Telling, like, Marine Le Pen to run for... To, to announce her... She's the far-right candidate. To announce herself as president overnight. Would it be cool with that? Like, would it be cool? <laughs> you know, like... You like, have to for, ask yourself these questions.
1: But, Wendy, these people, they're brown and poor. So, oh. you know, <laughs> like, And that's yeah, another
0: it, thing for a whole other day's discussion. Right? But also, the, the people who are, like, in our mentions and... In our discussions about Venezuela, like one of the things that I've noticed, and you can't help but notice it, like you cannot help but notice it, anyone who's commenting to me, either in English or in Spanish, is white, upper class, because in order for you to have stable internet access, Twitter access, to be able to write in English, you're most likely upper class in Venezuela, let's just keep it real. Mm-hmm. Um, or you've, or you're an expat, you're living abroad. Which, in that case, you're safely removed from anything that could happen during a U.S. invasion. Which we know how those go; mm-hmm. they never go great, right? Like
1: well, they the had collateral been... damage, also known as like human children and women and men and boys, and like like everybody, <laughs>
0: right. They're not just take, they're not going to go in and take out Maduro and everything's going to be fine. It's going to be a war. I mean, they've threatened literal war and ground troops in Venezuela. And some people were just looking at the thing with the notebook the other day with John Bolton, who also, by the way, let's talk about John Bolton for a second, full on warmonger. Again, someone else who's leading this, like use your brain, folks. Look at who's behind this. You don't yeah. want them doing this. Like,
1: is and Bolton and L.A. Abrams both yes. look like cartoon villains. I just it's astonishing. Like, it
0: really is. And so, like, these are like, this has been, I mean. This is for people who are like, I don't care what's going on in Latin America or whatever. Like, who cares what's going on in Brazil? For those of you who did follow my posts on Brazil, you will have seen me express things like Bolsonaro ran as part of his campaign promise to start a war with Venezuela to take out Maduro, right? He also talked about how he wanted to build refugee camps on the border to house Venezuelan migrants. There are a lot of Venezuelan migrants that end up in Brazil that migrate. Fine. No big deal. They've been... In the past, Brazil had fairly lenient immigration laws. So people could immigrate there and have um, residency fairly early on, especially in a case where they, if they could classify themselves or be classified, I should say, as refugees. Um, In which case, Brazil, prior to uh, Bolsonaro's entering power uh, and prior to the guy who took over after the coup and all that, basically once Joma was president still, they had a pretty flexible immigration policy and they were giving residency for like Haitians who had left because of natural disasters and because of Venezuelan migrants who had left on the basis of because the issue is, I think this is the other problem. A lot of times when we talk about Venezuelan food shortage, we talk about major cities like caracas which is the capital but we don't talk as much about rural areas which a lot of the migrants were fleeing from that's a separate Mm -hmm. issue but they were hit very hard by u.s sanctions so Mm -hmm. like we can't we can't have this discussion in a vacuum like there's all this all these moving parts and like all the moving parts are pointing to the fact that what's happening is messed up it's unacceptable it's absolutely a coup (laughs) you know like Yeah, yeah it's it's absurd like I can't even believe sometimes that I have to have these conversations. And like the people, if you look at all of the trolls in my mentions and all the trolls on Facebook and whatever, the people who are testif, who are going to the press and saying, you know, we have to take out, Madur-. not by the way, not, I'm not talking about just general opposition. I'm talking about people who are supporting a coup and the people who are supporting a coup are rich, White and doing all right. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> you know? not, it's
1: not the communists in Venezuela that are to the no. left of the government. <laughs> like, that's, no. not, that's not who's supporting the coup. Because they, they're, they're saying out we the, want
0: the, change, yeah. but they're not saying we want the U.S. to orchestrate a freaking war on our ground. Like this is not what people want.
1: Yes, and um, there's being there's a conflation going on between people that like are ready for change and or object from Maduro from the left, even mm-hmm. like and the the people that are objecting to Maduro from the right and wanting to stage a coup like those are right. it, but you can never even get to that kind of nuance unless you're talking in a circle of uh, informed leftists because otherwise you're basically doing imperialism's work for it right and, so, like, <laughs>
0: and there are people on like the self-proclaimed opposition even the ones who are kind of right-leaning they don't want a coup like this Guaido guy is extreme like i've seen examples of people who have said for example Johanna Joanna Hausman or Joanna Hausman, who's the daughter of like Mm -hmm. a wealthy, like former finance minister during the time of like full on neoliberal onslaught and harsh austerity. She has a YouTube and she like she's Venezuelan and she often does these things where she's like, this is what's happening in Venezuela But the rest of the time, she's, like, a comedy person, so she's not a political commentator or anything. Um, But anyway, (laughs) that aside, but she doesn't ever mention that, like, she's the daughter of one of the finance economics guys who was in power during, like, the the full-on austerity movement, uh, neoliberal-backed austerity movement before Chavez took over. So that's never mentioned. Uh, But she likes to say all the time, you know, that, uh, like people don't know what's going on in Venezuela. They don't understand the opposition is really strong. You know, nobody likes what's happening. Everybody's starving to death, blah, blah, blah. She paints a picture of Venezuela as if everybody's just out in the streets with pitchforks saying, take Maduro down, kill him, and let's get Trump to be our vice president after Guaido. Like, this is the (laughs) image she paints, you know? And in the opposition who are coming at Maduro from the right, who don't like Guaido, who don't want him to be president, who don't want a coup. So, it's not what we're seeing in the media is not reflective of or at least I should say when we're when we're hearing from people who are in favor of a coup. Use your brain, put things together with your brain, look at the evidence, consider just use common sense. Like you don't even have to you don't have to be an expert on Venezuela, you don't have to be an expert on Latin America, you don't even have to speak Spanish. Just consider what you see and ask yourself does this representation make sense when i put together all these facts does it make sense does it not make sense and what i'm seeing doesn't make any or at least the support of a coup doesn't it's not logical it doesn't make objective sense
1: and from what i one of the things that stuck out to me in both your description and just in my general uh, observations was something back that we talked about before about essentially after world war ii there was a lot of studying going on and how how germany was able to make nazis behave the way they did and there was an idea put forth called bullet theory and uh the idea was that that was abandoned but i think what we've seen both in the election or in venezuela or a variety of different media contexts what we see is like no they just decided to figure out how to shoot better and more bullets and like and, and just hope that the wall of bullets will knock down any opposing thought like that. And so we uh, with Venezuela, we see just constant bombardment of uh, as Wendy, I think, very well laid out the a narrative rather than any sort of uh, informational or sharing is we're definitely not consciousness raising with the media coverage of Venezuela. That's no sure, right. Like. And they've even managed to get, like, Western reporters on the streets to, to get people's feedback. And, like, the, the that has been uh, unduly one-sided. And, and I mentioned before that only since, like, after the first seven days when, you know, essentially the U.S. and West was, you know, in an ideal situation, uh, except for some of the military contractors, that, you know, the, the coup works, Maduro's gone. Guaido's in charge by day three or something, you know, mm-hmm. like but when that turned out not to be the w- way I, that's the only then did you start to see, hey, wait, you mean there's there's supporters for Maduro in the streets? Oh, you mean there's uh, there's this poll that that's out there that shows that 80 some odd percent are against, you know, sanctions and 80 uh, percent are against uh, U.S. intervention. So like this, this Guaido guy is representing a very small faction of of the opposition to maduro (laughs) yeah and that that not only is his faction but the opposition is being you know inflated and conflated it's it it just any sort of just looking just a little bit beyond like what the 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 media is trying to pour into your receptacle like just looking just slightly beyond that and you see immediately that that doesn't match and it's like when it doesn't match you have to think well wait a minute Maybe it's an honest mistake, but these people are six-figure, seven-figure, eight-figure salaries, professionals, there's politicians, all these. Surely some of them have noticed these inconsistencies, and so they must be intentionally, uh, you know, hiding them. And that's, I think, what concerns me the most, is that there's, like, even among the ostensibly left uh, side of American politics, this has been almost completely ignored or even cheerleaded by uh, Dick Durbin, for example. Yes, (laughs) <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> this is I think this tells us how far gone in the wrong direction people who are ostensibly left-leaning who call themselves that at least in the Democratic Party that it shows and I guess it's some, you know, some other parties too or people groups who will remain nameless. Mm-hmm. But like even DSA, I mean I think DSA put out a very good statement saying why we should we anyone who's a socialist should not be supporting a coup in Venezuela. Um and you know, like opening, leaving the door open for understanding that there are going to be people with differing views in Venezuela. Like, I I hate it when people say things like, you know, we have to hear uh from the from Venezuelans. It's like, yeah, but every Venezuelan doesn't have the same opinion. Like Yeah, like what does that do
1: if you do it to America? We have to listen to Americans about what they think. It's like, well (laughs) there's a lot of different thoughts, right?
0: Exactly. But like having an understanding that like I think first and foremost the understanding needs to be everybody has a different opinion, but the majority does not want war and i understand that
1: it's not hard to imagine why even if you absolutely loathed maduro you would not be open to the idea of the u.s coming in and fixing it
0: right right? because we know what that means like they know what that means you know they've seen i mean they know they literally know because they have survived years and years and decades and centuries of external violence in their country they know what economic austerity as dictated by the west looks like they know what resource deprivation looks like as dictated by the west they know what resource removal and exploration looks like you know i don't think it's it's kind of it's not kind of it's very obnoxious for people living in the west who are relatively safe from this type of uh you know wealth extraction to then look at a population that has suffered from imperialism for centuries and be like hey guys chill out it's not that big of a deal they just want your oil just give it to them and call it a day you know like this is not how it works and so i think that there really needs to be just like basic common sense reflection on what's going on and then dig beyond I on mean, the mainstream, you can find things in the mainstream press that show you what's happening, where they when they reveal themselves, and they, they lay out what's actually going on. Because as you mentioned, Richard, it's likely a pride in that as opposed to <laughs> being some sort of expose, like this is they feel good about what they're doing. And this is what's also surprising right now. Because mm-hmm. I'm old enough to remember when they tried to pretend like these things were like for humanitarian reasons. And I think, Around uh, the war and the invasion of Libya, that's when we really started to see them just stop even doing that. Like with Libya, they didn't do it. With the coup in Honduras, they didn't do it. With the coup that happened, the legislative coups that happened in Paraguay and Brazil, which many of us believe that the U.S. had a direct hand in in both cases, we didn't see an explanation, right? for the first time we we got like two seconds of explanation and then the coup happened. And I think this is what's happening here too. Like we're, they gave us like the little, Oh, Maduro's hurting his own people, song and dance. And then after that, they just said, fuck it. We're going to just lay it all out there. We're going to say what we're doing. Let's just call it a day. And so I think now they've like, they've abandoned any pretense and that should scare people too, that they're not even dressing it up anymore. You know?
1: it's terrifying and and yeah just i don't (laughs) it's i i struggle to to grasp how people are like the partisanship the fierce partisanship like when it when that melts away for a bipartisan consensus to bomb or uh you know to invade some other country that is just like we I can understand if you're, you know, 18 to 24 and the Iraq buildup isn't really in your living memory, really. Like, Mm -hmm. But for anybody old enough to even vaguely kind of remember even not even just how the buildup to Iraq was, but when there was actually any sort of, you know, forensic analysis of what happened, like if you're old enough to remember that part the the parallels and and with uh, when he mentioned with Libya or you know and, or what failure looks like in U S regime change for Syria or that the U S is actively like giving weapons and bombs to Saudi Arabia to drop. In other countries that are actually really starving, like, soup, like, not, you know, just food insecurity, but are, like, children and babies are laid up in beds dying from starvation, not, you know, some, you know, what looks to be some well-fed protesters on the streets uh, complaining about Maduro, like, this is, like, the U.S. is sponsoring what uh, many in the U.N. call the most horrific and largest humanitarian crisis in the world, so to to try to balance that with the with what the the excuse for humanitarianism in Venezuela is just unconscionable. But if you went to a politician or UN, I guarantee you they would say, "Well, that's some classic whataboutism." There it is. Yeah. yeah. Like no, it's like it's not. It's pointing out a contradiction in the themes in which you are trying to operate or say that you are moving through this world. You're saying you are making this in a humanitarian effort while sponsoring. Uh, Saudi Arabia who admitted at first before like the world was like well, hey that's not cool to intentionally bombing a bus full of children as a right. strategic target with a U.S. bomb and U.S. intelligence aids like, like <laughs> I mean at first I remember when I was more of a, a moderate progressive or whatever and seeing uh, the the what who's kind of become popular, the woman from Code mm-hmm. Pink, and thinking, oh, you know, that's that's you know, a person that's kind of you know out there and not really um, Benjamin. And, yeah, and it's like now I realize, oh she's the only sane person in this country. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what it feels like sometimes. You know, it's like going up there and like screaming, we can't be going to war all the time. Like is like we all should be so like, I mean, obviously we don't all share the same kind of privileges that allow those opportunities. But like it it feels like we should all be that motivator, that feel that urgent about Mm -hmm. this situation and many others. And it's just like it doesn't. I mean, uh, we're we're gonna be we're gonna have a cop rammed down our throat for our next president. So like I'm just at a loss.
0: (laughs) Well, on that note, speaking of loss, we unfortunately Mm -hmm. need to end this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, That kind of rounds out that that definitely rounds out part two of our series on. Uh, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, thank you all for listening thus far. If you're, if you listen to the first part, mm-hmm. if you haven't. I would suggest go back and listen to it um, and then join us for the third part of this discussion, which will be coming out in a few weeks, um, where we continue on with the rest of the book. And we also have, we're going to do another kind of update like we did today based on whatever developments have happened in the world Mm -hmm. and locally by that point, because God only knows, like right now, there's so much happening in a day. Sometimes it's hard to keep track of, of everything and discuss it in a way that's comprehensive Um, but I think that your, your discussion and you're kind of touching on things that we opened this episode with, and that we started to talk about when we started to discuss, uh, more on episode or sorry, more on chapter two is a nice way to end it. Um, so again, thank you all so much for listening and, uh, be on the lookout for part three. Yep.
1: Uh, I just want to say thank you to everyone, all the patrons and everybody that's sharing and don't be a vessel, you know, reach back out, you know, you can find me at road to the number two revolution. Uh. i'm not huge on twitter so if you at me i'll probably see it and if it looks like you're trying to engage uh, sincerely i will probably engage you so we can talk about uh frary or any of the other episodes we talked about but uh i don't want to i don't want to be a pitcher and i don't want anybody else to feel like a vessel so let's let's learn together
0: oh hey speaking of learning together one of the things that i forgot to announce in the last episode but that i should announce now. Like, surprise, surprise. Richard is actually going to be joining me as a permanent host of Left POC. Um, So for those of you who've been listening for a while, you know that Richard has always been my co-host for Reading Revolution. Um, And I think we've done, what, four or five episodes together, Richard? Like, Mm -hmm. on at least four or five works of uh, leftist thinkers or what they were reading. Um, But I was like, I really like having Richard as a co-host. I should just have him on all the time. So Richard is now going to be one of the... One, he's going to be the co-host of the Left Pocket Project, uh, so that for those of you who maybe haven't heard a Left Pocket Project episode, I generally will interview an academic or uh, organizer to talk about the history of leftists of color, which is what the podcast is all about and the project is all about. So I'm really excited, and I'll probably do a more formal announcement uh, <laughs> later on, but I just wanted to give you guys a heads up. You will be hearing a lot more from Richard going on in the future, um, and I look forward to it. And I'm really thankful that he's available and could tolerate me enough to come on as
1: (laughs) no it's it's a privilege it's a privilege and an honor and i'm thankful and i can only hope to to do what you've already done justice by when i join you
0: yeah richard will be the one to introduce the love as i introduce the hate (laughs) and pain and anger (laughs) he'll always be the one reminding me at the end like wendy it's all about love, right? Remember Freddy? Let's go it's back a, to that.
1: It's the smallest smallest thing I can do by to, <laughs> to try to do anything to write the 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 mass or going to say masochistic but the uh the misogynistic history of this world I can I can take on the burden of being the the more Uh, Empathetic and allow the righteous fury uh, of oppressed uh, women—that all the identities that Wendy embodies—to to to be expressed through her. That's the smallest thing I can do. So I, uh, it's my again honor and privilege to be part of that.
0: Yes, and on that note, again, thank you all so much for listening and for contributing and supporting us. And uh, we'll be back soon with part three. Have a good one, y'all. Of part two for our Reading Revolution series on Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, be sure to check us out on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, Spreaker, iTunes, all of the great places where you can find podcasts and more information on the show. Also, be sure to visit our Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash left POC, and donate to support the show, because as you know, if you've been listening, everything we post, from the podcast to the content to uh, materials that you can read along with to information about the people that we profile in the podcast all of it you can find for free on the patreon page so your support really helps us in terms of keeping the show running so be sure to add a dollar or more each month uh, to keep left poc alive thanks so much again to everyone who listened and who supports and have a good one